Our top story, friends and family mourning the death of a Hilton Head Island woman who was at the center of a legal dispute with a developer. Josephine Wright's story got national attention with celebrities like Tyler Perry, Snoop Dogg, and Fantasia supporting her cause. And since News 3, First News at 4, we've been telling you that Josephine Wright passed away at the age of 94. WSAV's Joseph Leonard is joining us from our Lowcountry newsroom with a look back at her life. Josephine Wright wanted to sit on her porch with her great-grandchildren on land her family has had since the Civil War. But a developer says that porch is on its property. But the 94-year-old wasn't going to give up on her home that easily, that fight making national headlines. Tonight, her family remembering her for fighting for their history and future. I've been pretty much of a fight all my life. Fighting for this home on Jonesville Road, surrounding it, Bailey Point's investments plan to build 147 houses, pitting the 94-year-old at the center of a lawsuit over her land, land that's been in her family since the Civil War that she wanted to protect. And when developers came knocking, Wright never backed down. I just want to keep this a sanctuary, and I believe that we will do that. So I don't even have any uh, doubts about this is going to happen. Wright passed away peacefully on January 7th. She was a grandmother to 40, great-grandmother to 50, and great-great-grandmother to 16. Her story resonating with many across the world. Celebrities like Tyler Perry, Snoop Dogg, and Kyrie Irving all donating to the cause. A GoFundMe in her honor now sits at more than $360,000. Perry even promising to build a new home for Miss Wright. All of those people seeing in her story what they have seen so many times before. Stripping away land and history from communities similar to what they grew up in. We're very big on, on generational wealth or trying to accrue it. When you talk about poverty in our communities, it's because we don't have access to land. And when we do, people want to take it away. Wright's legacy is far from finished. Several months ago, her family told News 3 they will continue her battle to make sure she gets justice and also set an example for others going through similar struggles. This situation isn't going to be the end, you know, of this legacy. And I love that. Like, I'm going to fight till the end. Her lawsuit with Bailey Point Investment was recently in mediation. The project is on hold until two sides come to an agreement. But with Wright passing, there's no word yet on what this means for the case. Joseph Leonard, WSAV News 3, on your side. Joseph, thank you. Tyler Perry sharing his reaction to Josephine Wright's death, saying, I am so heartbroken to hear about the passing of this warrior. I was so looking forward to handing her the keys to her new house, but God has other plans. My prayer is that you rest in peace, knowing that I will honor the commitment that I made to you. I know you will be watching over us all as I hand those same keys to your family. And I'm talking about challenges such as, obviously there was just outright overt racism that he faced, but I'm talking about in Boston after leading them to six championships of his 11, it was midway through his career, people broke into his home in suburban Boston, sprayed racial slurs on the walls of his house and left human feces in his bed. In his bed. 
And he played through that. I'm talking about being under FBI surveillance for being an arrogant Negro, as the FBI termed him. Those are the things, and we could go on and on, that Bill Russell played through, won through, excelled through. Basketball great Bill Russell won a record 11 NBA championships with the Boston Celtics. He lived in the nearby town of Reading during his playing days, but it wasn't always a friendly place for a black family, even for one of the most famous athletes of all time. Now, Reading is facing a reckoning as people there look to honor their former neighbor. Irina Machivariani from member station WBUR reports. On court, Bill Russell was amazing. Off court, the Celtics' towering center faced different challenges. When his family settled in Reading early in his career, his children were the only black kids at school. The town made some overtures to welcome the family by holding a celebration in 1963 at a high school for Bill Russell Day. But things went downhill quickly. Russell experienced a slew of racist incidents. Perhaps the best-known one was a break-in. Here's ESPN and NPR contributor Howard Bryant. Vandals broke into his house and ransacked his house and smeared feces on his wall. That was something barbaric. Russell left Reading in 1969, the same year he retired from the Celtics. A permanent date for Bill Russell Day was never established. After Russell died in 2022, the town board did pass a proclamation honoring him. Now, a local social justice group called Cato, the Coalition of Us, has stepped up. Its members asked the town for a permanent Bill Russell Day and an acknowledgement of the family's mistreatment. Fillmore Phillip is the group's founder. He says Reading needs to reckon with its past. It's not fair of him and his family to be celebrated for his accomplishments without acknowledging what he dealt with in this town. But there's pushback from some officials. Reading Select Board member Mark Doxer says he understands why the town might be hesitant to open old wounds. A lot of folks are in this community since the 60s. So for them, I think some of the stories might be a little bit painful. And I think we need to figure out how as a community do we respond to that? How do we take the community forward? How do we become more inclusive in terms of what's going on? The debate over how to proceed came to a head at a town select board meeting last month. Local officials support the idea of celebrating Bill Russell, but not all of them want to put the town's name on the event or to create a citizens' committee to plan any of it. Board member Carlo Bacci said the day should be a volunteer-led event and it should focus on Russell the athlete, not race and civil rights. We're talking about civil rights. We're talking about people. We're talking about human rights. I mean, if we need a committee for that, we need a committee for a lot of other things. Advocates say they expect Redding to own the job of acknowledging Russell's legacy and the fact that the problems he wrestled with decades ago are still present today. Tara Gregory is a member of Cato. Black and brown residents have very different experiences in Redding compared to their white counterparts. Not everybody has a great experience in this town, and we have to acknowledge that there is a problem to move forward. The Redding Select Board plans to vote next month. If the proposal passes, there will be a Bill Russell Day in 2024, an overdue tribute that will paint the town Celtic green. For NPR News, I'm Irina Majavadiani in Boston. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white 
genetic annihilation. What is everybody in Europe worried about now? Why genetic annihilation? A new analysis estimates how abortion bans affected birth rates in some states. Side effects public media's Morgan Watkins reports. The analysis indicates that bans have led to an increase in birth rates in some states with varying degrees. Researchers analyzed 13 states where almost all abortions were effectively outlawed between January and June of 2023. They used statistics to estimate how the bans affected birth rates. Missouri had the smallest increase in births related to its abortion ban at 0.4 percent. Other states like Kentucky and Texas had higher increases, but why? The research suggests one factor is that people in some states are farther from the nearest legal abortion clinic. Economics professor Mayra Pineda Torres co-authored the research. She says how abortion bans affect birth rates could change over time. Policy changes will continue happening all across states, so that may contribute to a change in、uh, the impacts that bans can have on births. For example, Indiana's near-total abortion ban didn't take effect until this past August. I'm Morgan Watkins, Side Effects Public Media. Medical apartheid: the dark history of medical experimentation on Black Americans from colonial times to the present. The diagnosis of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's prostate cancer and his initial decision not to disclose it has put that cancer back at the center of some attention. As John Yang explains, it's one of the most treatable cancers, but for many men, there's still a stigma around it all too often. Anna, Secretary Austin was one of the estimated 288,000 men diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2023. It's the most common cancer among men after skin cancer, but according to the American Cancer Society, the five-year survival rate in the United States is 99 percent. While one in eight of all men will develop the disease in their lifetime, among black men, it's one in six. Dr. Jay Raman is professor and chair of the Department of Urology at Penn State Health. Dr. Raman, we've often heard、uh, prostate cancer be described as slow growing. So help us understand where it is and how often does it spread? That's a great question. I think one of the things we have to understand is that prostate cancer really represents a spectrum of disease. There are certain types of prostate cancer which are slow growing; they're indolent. You're more likely to die with it than die from it. But there are other types that are more aggressive, and these require some type of therapy—surgery, radiation, or some combination. But all of these collectively, as you alluded to, result in a cure rate that is excellent if it's found early. And let's just quickly remind people what the prostate is and what what its function is. So the prostate itself is a small organ. It's about the size of a walnut. It's located deep in the pelvis, and it's really a reproductive organ. It really helps with men having. Secretions that nutrition give nutrition to the sperm and allow them to have children. Later in life, however, we really know the prostate as two real causative factors: one, prostate cancer; the other being an enlarged prostate. And in this case, we're talking about developing prostate cancer in this organ. Secretary Austin's physicians say his cancer was detected early and as part of a routine、uh, health screening. Are there lessons in that? Well, I think for prostate cancer, screening is absolutely critical, and screening really involves identifying problems such as cancer at an early stage and an early phase when it's not only treatable but highly curable. For prostate cancer, we're really talking about checking a blood test called the PSA test, as well as a rectal examination to feel the prostate for lumps and bumps. 
And an abnormality in either of these could suggest the presence of prostate cancer and at a minimum needs to be pursued further. Screening, how soon should it begin and how often should it be done? So for the patient at average risk, so an average man in the United States, we're looking at ages between 45 and 50 years of age to have that initial PSA blood test as well as that initial rectal examination. Now, there are certain patients that are at higher risk. Those are patients of black African-American race or black ancestry, those with a first-degree male relative with prostate cancer, or those with genetic or hereditary mutations. Those patients really need to be screened at an earlier age, about 40 to 45 years, because they're at a higher risk of developing the disease. Is there a stigma around prostate cancer, the, the belief that it's an old man's disease, it leads to impotence, it leads to incontinence? Well, I really think about it this way. If you look at breast cancer in women, it occurs at approximately the same rate as what we see in prostate cancer in men. And women are excellent advocates for their health. You hear a lot about mammography, self-examination, getting checked, getting screened. I think for men in general, health problems create a little bit more of a stigma, a sense that if they feel fine, there might not be a problem. And the reality is, is that Diagnosing and checking these conditions early, identifying prostate cancer early, allows you to identify it at a point where maybe some of these side effects that you talked about, impotence and incontinence, may be mitigated or minimized. We also hear women talk a lot about breast cancer, talk about among themselves to bolster each other. Men, not so much about prostate cancer. Is that a hurdle to more screening and more detection, early detection? Absolutely. If you look at prostate cancer, it is really an asymptomatic cancer until we reach a late stage or a late grade. And once men start having symptoms, I always say the wheels are starting to come off that wagon and the ability to treat and cure this disease is less. So I really believe that you know high profile cases like this really underscore the importance that anybody can get prostate cancer, those that are in your community, those that perhaps are of higher profile. And the importance is really getting the word out, having these discussions, understanding that one in eight men do develop this disease. And it's important to have these discussions and so men get checked and screened. Dr. Jay Raman of Penn State Health, thank you very much. Thank you. From colonial times to the present. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Tainan, Taiwan, which, you know, hasn't been the seat of government in Taiwan in quite a while, but there is a very good case to be made that this city is still the culinary capital of this entire island. A lot of cooks in Tainan begin their days right here in a market called Shui Xian Gong Market. And if you look out at all the displays of shiny orange and silver fish, bright rows of glistening pork ribs and overflowing crates of dragon fruit and guava, what you really see in this place is a portrait of all the forces, both indigenous and from external colonizers that have shaped modern Taiwan. So to better understand, the Dutch, the Chinese, and the Japanese imprinted on the Taiwanese palette, we met up with Clarissa Wei and Ivy Chen, who've just written a cookbook called Made in Taiwan. Hi. Hi. Now that title declares something. Even though about 90% of the people here have Chinese ancestry, they have forged a cuisine that is all their own. I grew up where my mom cooked both Taiwanese and Chinese food, so I kind of thought both cuisines were the same thing when I was a kid. 
Clarissa, how would you explain the difference between Taiwanese and Chinese food? So in terms of like cooking techniques and ingredients, it's very similar. Um, but Taiwanese food is quite distinct in that we have our own pantry items that are unique to Taiwan. Um, Taiwanese cuisine tends to be more sweet. Um, here in Tainan, the food is very, very sweet because this used to be a sugarcane producing hub. And when Taiwan was a Japanese colony, Taiwan um, produced most of the sugar for the Japanese empire. And at one point, like two thirds of all Taiwanese families were in the sugarcane producing business. So it was a huge part of our culture. To show us this Taiwanese love of sugar, Ivy leads us to a stand full of bright pink sweets. It's a fixture at this market. They establish 100 years. You Almost. have been here a hundred years? Third generation. Ivy hands me a hot pink gooey pancake. That's Anggu Gui. It's called Anggu Gui. They're decorated to look like the top of a turtle shell. I want to try Angdawa, red bean. Angdawa. <laughs> oh, I love how sticky this is. That is from sticky rice, which is a short grain rice. Clarissa says short grain rice had to fight its way onto this island after Chinese settlers had been growing long grain for centuries. When the Japanese came, they sort of craved their short grain rice. It's the rice you have in sushi, which is really sticky. But short grain rice does not grow well in a subtropical climate, so they spent 10 years trying to cultivate a short grain rice on Yangmingsan, which is a mountain hill-ish area in Taipei. After 10 years, they finally succeeded, and that has become our rice of choice. And because it's so laborious to cultivate rice, it was deemed a worthy offering to the gods and ancestors. That's why people will take sticky rice sweets like Anggu Gui to temples, such as one just steps away from this vendor. It's called Shui Shen Gong Temple. And, you know, you will often see temples and food markets appear side by side in Taiwan. During the worship time, two, three hours, people are hungry, so they are hanging out in the neighborhood, they're looking for food, and that's how many small vendors gathering in the neighborhood and start doing their business. I love how like mopeds and motorcycles and scooters are just driving through the market stands. Yeah, it's chaos. Shui Shen Gong Temple is hundreds of years old. It's dedicated to the water gods, and paintings above the entrance pay homage to the ocean that surrounds this island. Yeah, you see one man pulling an octopus from the sea. Yeah, it looks like it, or a squid, and all. to the left there's like an old man fishing. And then I spot one of my favorite delicacies of the ocean, fish balls. Oh, it smells so good. What are the different fish here? Oh, they have frondo fish ball, they have shrimp ball. So on the top left, that's the milkfish ball. So the milkfish is very important agriculture in Tainan area. Milkfish. Milkfish. And milkfish also has a connection to the Dutch colonization on this island, right, Clarissa? Yeah, so um, the milkfish, it's been here for centuries. Um, the indigenous, they, their name for it was mata because of their beady eyes. Um, and when the Dutch came, they started the aquaculture industry where they were breeding the milkfish. And it's just become a staple in the Taiwanese diet ever since. To plunge further into the aquaculture of this island, we head closer to the shore to another neighborhood in Tainan called Anping. You can see groups of people shucking oysters on street corners here, Taiwanese oysters. Chinese migrants started growing these along the west coast of this island more than 200 years ago. And these oysters, they show up in a dish my mom used to cook all through my childhood. 
Oajen. We order some at a small street restaurant. This place is called Old Dutch Fort Oyster Omelet. And behind us is another Dutch Fort. So Oajen is basically an omelet that's studded with Taiwanese oysters, which are smaller than those you might see in North America. The omelet's thickened with sweet potato starch and then slathered in a sweet and tangy sauce. I take a bite and... Man, now I'm wondering if my mom's been cooking Oajen wrong my entire childhood. <laughs> this tastes so different. So as we're like looking at all the different ingredients in this oyster omelet, what do you think these ingredients tell us about the island? Yeah, so I really like this dish because it describes what Taiwanese food was 200, 300 years ago. It's very simple and like the bulk of it really is sweet potato starch because sweet potatoes thrive. There's a little bit of egg for protein, but not much. And then oysters, which grow in abundance because we're located right next to the shore. Some bean sprouts and some greens for texture. And it looks very gooey and gelatinous. Um, but this is very much poor man's food. It's very filling as well because of all the starch. And this isn't a dish you associate with um, Chinese food at all. It's something that is very, very Taiwanese and unique to Taiwan. And I totally grew up thinking this was Chinese. So this is, I'm just kind of like, <laughs> whoa, right now. <laughs> And understanding what distinguishes Chinese food from Taiwanese food, well, that was something even Ivy slowly discovered on her own. And she had been a cooking instructor for years. Her students are usually from other parts of the world. My customer keep asking me, what is the Taiwanese food and what is the Chinese food? What's the difference? So then I need to ask myself. So I study and I figure out Oh, so that was a process for you. It's not like you knew the answer right away. What is the difference no, between no. Taiwanese I, and yeah, Chinese? Yeah, I can tell, cuisines? but I never think that people will ask me that way. I need to give a definition about the Chinese food and Taiwanese food. Here's the thing, though. There can't be a black and white definition of Taiwanese food. But Clarissa and Ivy argue the food is unique. The flavors, the produce, the seafood, they are the historical record of colonialism and migration on this island. And that's why they say this island's cuisine deserves to stand on its own. This story was produced by Mallory Yu and Janaki Mehta. Patrick Jaranwatananan was the editor. Mountain Dew is now the official soft drink of the NBA. Cities that impose taxes on sugary drinks saw prices rise and consumption fall. That is according to a study published today in the journal JAMA Health Forum. Researchers say this provides more evidence that these controversial taxes really do work. Joining me to talk it through, NPR's Maria Godoy. Hey there. Hi. So which cities have done this? What are we talking here? Well, we're talking about five U.S. cities that introduced the taxes between 2017 and 2018. So Oakland and San Francisco in California, Seattle, Boulder, Colorado, and Philadelphia. And the taxes ranged from one to two cents per ounce. So for a two liter bottle, that would be about 67 cents to $1.30 extra in taxes. And studies have looked at the effect of soda taxes before, but they usually studied one city at a time. This new study looked at multiple cities at the same time to get an idea of what might happen if these taxes were more widespread. And what did happen? What did the researchers find? Well, you know, prices went up by about 33 percent and purchases went down by about the same amount, 33 percent. 
Scott Kaplan is an economics professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. He led the study, and he says that's actually a big effect. In other words, for every 1% increase in price, we find that purchases fall by about 1%. So when people had to pay more for sugary drinks, they reduced their consumption. Maria, my mind, of course, is shooting straight to ways that people could game this. <laughs> Couldn't people have just, I don't know, driven to the next city over, driven to the suburbs, found soda that was still cheaper? Yeah, you know, that's a good point. And earlier research in Philadelphia found that while sales of sugary drinks went down in that city, they actually went up in surrounding areas, indicating that people, yeah, were driving to avoid the taxes. But this new study didn't find that. Across the five U.S. cities they looked at, those cross-border sales didn't increase. So it worked is what you're telling me. I mean, that's the stated goal of these taxes is curbing consumption. Well, yeah, from a public health standpoint, sugary drinks really have no nutritional value. And as Kaplan noted, you tend to guzzle them without registering the calories so they don't fill you up. Sugar sweet beverages make up like a quarter of all the added sugar we see in the average adult American diet. And, and that's a really big amount. And of course, too much sugar is linked to a host of bad health outcomes like diabetes, obesity, heart disease. So these taxes are designed to discourage people from drinking so much sugar. In fact, back in 2019, both the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Pediatricians officially endorsed soda taxes as a good way to reduce the risk of childhood obesity. And just last month, the World Health Organization called on countries to increase taxes on sugary drinks. Although, as we noted right at the start, these are really controversial. There's all kinds of pushback to these taxes. Well, right. The U.S. Uh, saw flurry of localities pass these sugary drinks starting about a decade ago. And then there was pushback and the soda industry poured millions of dollars into fighting them. In some states, opponents passed laws that basically stripped localities of the power to be able to pass soda taxes. So they kind of stalled. In a statement to NPR, the American Beverage Association said that the industry's strategy of offering more choices with less sugar is working and that nearly 60 percent of beverages sold today have zero sugar. They say these drink taxes are unproductive and hurt consumers. Thank you, Maria. My pleasure. And Pierre's Maria Godoy. At the Skid Row People's Market, owner Danny Park is ringing up a sale. Okay, total is 118. He's the second generation Korean American owner of this store, and after nearly three decades in business, he's selling it. He's getting out. But instead of seeking out the highest bidder, Park has worked out a deal with a neighborhood nonprofit organization that serves local residents and the unhoused. Skid Row is, uh, you know, predominantly. Uh, black, and uh, folks and residents who live in a neighborhood should rightfully have some control over the institutions that serve the neighborhood. And so the sale feels like a step toward healing the historic tensions between the Korean-American community and the black community in Los Angeles. KCRW's Megan Jamerson takes it from here. At the Skid Row People's Market, Danny Park's customers can buy things like fresh produce, socks, and duct tape. But the store's motto, which is painted high above a cold case, offers Skid Row something more. Our mission statement is providing products and services that nourish the mind, body, and soul while uplifting the creative spirit. I hung out at the store on a recent afternoon for about an hour, and I saw a woman come by to pick up her cell phone. 
after Park let her charge it. And an employee offer customers assistance with carrying their baskets around. Park, his mom, and their employees do many things to be nice to customers. They also offer them a safe hangout space. Two unhoused men sat on stools inside the store until it closed. That afternoon, there was a steady stream of customers. I met one after he made his purchase, a man who goes by the name Righteous Awareness. Bag of chips or some chips I like. No, because they're good for the heart. A couple snacks and a uh, pair. He says for the last five years, he's bought something from the store almost every day. It's a wonderful story. A lot of nice people, you know. I like the vibes. The story of Danny Park's family business started when his parents, May and Bob, immigrated from Korea. First, they had a printing business. Then they bought the corner store in 1995. It was a tough time for Korean Americans to own small businesses in black neighborhoods in the aftermath of the 1992 LA riots. When Danny Park took over the store in 2018, Park's friend and mentor, Pastor Stephen Q. Jean Maui, says he saw Park face these tensions with honesty. Considering, you know, the commentaries that we've heard or there's always been this, well, there's the Korean people come into our communities and they extract wealth from our community. They don't put anything back into our communities. But John Maui, who is Black, says Danny Park turned that stereotypical story of Black and Korean-American tensions around. I think what's beautiful about Danny is that Danny is not just someone who profited from the community, right? I think once he took over, he led his family to really understand what the communities have been going through and, and the trials that the community has gone through. And I think the younger generation, folks of color who are coming together, especially after 2020, have embraced each other in a way that the older generation can't. For Park, the decision to sell the store was difficult, but the timing was right. His 69-year-old mother, who still works at the store, wants to retire. Park says it will take getting used to after the store has been the center of their lives for so long. Yeah, like, what am I going to talk to my mom about now? You know, I'm just, just going to, like, twiddle our thumbs. On a serious note, he says the stress of running the store and wanting to be a good steward to the community was taking a toll on him. I think I came to a realization that I, the best thing to do is, like, kind of, I need to take care of myself. After the decision was made in the fall, Park's first phone call was to John Maui. Park remembers saying, I'm just calling because I want to share in my, with what's going on. It, like, And uh, I, I just need someone to share this with. And during that conversation, John Maui, who founded the community nonprofit Creating Justice LA, remembers Park said something really important. Once he said he wanted a community member to take over the store or the market, I understood exactly what he meant. And he wanted to continue that legacy of, uh, of, of taking care of the community. Park says he wanted that because of what the community had given his family over the years. The residents and community really helped, uh, you know, put food on the table for our family. We were able to purchase our first house, uh, help pay for me and my sister's schooling, all these things, just this access to life opportunities. So John Maui came back to Park with a proposal about a week after their first phone call. 
He said creating justice should acquire the business. Park, who sits on the nonprofit's board, agreed this would help to ensure the store could continue its mission. It's a beautiful, unexpected kind of thing that is like really awesome. The mission of the store and John Maui's nonprofit are nicely aligned. John Maui says creating justice is about fostering social and economic health for the people of Skid Row. Their projects include a worker-owned co-op called the Hip Hop Smoothie Shop and running community programming at the Peace and Healing Center in Skid Row. Meanwhile, the symbolism of a second-generation Korean-American-owned store being sold to a Black-run nonprofit is not lost on John Maui. I think it's a step, uh, you know, towards healing and a step to build outside of the, the regular narrative. The handover of the store's ownership will take about two to three months. John Maui says once that's complete, the store will still be an affordable market. There are no big grocery store chains in the area, just corner markets. And few, like the People's Market, offer fresh produce and ready-to-eat packaged meals. John Maui is seeking community input on how the nonprofit might improve and expand community services at the store. The nonprofit will also be kicking off a fundraising campaign, and some of those funds will go toward the purchase of the store. Back at the market, it was 5 o'clock, and Park was closing up for the day. I asked him, how would he like his family remembered? He chewed on the question thoughtfully. Hopefully as a um, source of uh, inspiration, that we can be part of something that can bring inspiration for people. You know, that would be a great, like, privilege. Yeah. What's next for Park this year? Lots of rest and reflection. And at 39 years old, figuring out how he will continue some sort of advocacy work in downtown L.A. And perhaps the most important thing of all, he's getting married. For KCRW, I'm Megan Jamerson. You know, First Ladies usually have a cause. And you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt. And we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other, and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice, since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says it's making those apps safer for kids. This comes after growing pressure from all sides. Parents, lawmakers, former employees, you name it. And the company is also fending off lawsuits. NPR tech correspondent Dara Kerr has the details. Hi, Dara. Hi, Ari. What is Meta changing about how these apps work? So this change is one of the biggest moves Meta has made to try and make Instagram and Facebook safer for kids. The company says that over the next few months, it'll start automatically restricting various types of content on teenagers' accounts. That means posts about suicide, self-harm, and eating disorders. And this is for all people under the age of 18. So say you're a teen and one of your friends posts something about self-harm on Instagram. Meta says its filters will automatically block you from seeing that post. And teens are also are also not going to be able to search for that type of content. And if they do, Meta says they'll be directed to resources for help. A lot of questions about these announcements. I guess the biggest is, will this actually make things safer for kids online? 
Yeah, it is really hard to solve things like this. On the one hand, it may restrict teens from seeing certain posts, but on the other hand, it could prevent them from knowing when to reach out to a friend in trouble. And today, I've heard from a bunch of child safety advocates who think these changes still don't go far enough. There's a lot of toxic content on social media, so teens may still be vulnerable to bullying and, and seeing posts that aren't being captured by Meta's filters. Does Meta even know who is a teen and who's not? Well, you're supposed to put in your birth date when you sign up, but it's pretty easy for kids to lie about their age on Facebook and Instagram. Here's psychologist Jean Twangy. Their parents might have no idea. Just the way it's set up, because you don't need parental permission. Just check a box. Check a box saying that you're 13 or, um, you know, you choose a different birth year and boom, you're on. I talked to a Meta spokeswoman about this, and she acknowledged people can misrepresent their ages on apps. And she said Meta is investing in age verification tools and technology to try and detect when people lie about their ages. These apps have been around for years, and Meta has been criticized for these sorts of things almost as long. Why did it take until now for them to put these policies in place? Yeah, well, this year has been a particular doozy for Meta. Um, we need a lot more time, Ari, to get into all of it. But it's fair to say Meta has been attacked on all fronts. Parent groups have rallied on Capitol Hill. And this is even an issue that's united conservatives and liberals in Congress. A bipartisan group of senators are pushing to pass legislation called the Kids Online Safety Act, which would hold social media companies accountable for feeding teens toxic content. And also a new Meta whistleblower came forward with more information about what goes on inside the company. A new whistleblower. But a couple years ago, we heard from another whistleblower that Facebook was aware its products harmed kids, right? Yeah, yeah. In 2021, an initial whistleblower came forward. And then this past November, Arturo Bahar, whose job involved protecting Meta's users, went public with new internal documents. Those showed Meta hasn't stopped its algorithms from pushing harmful content to teens. And that's led to a massive lawsuit by 40 states alleging Meta's social media products are addictive. And that has fueled a mental health crisis for teens. So Meta's announcement today, which was in a blog post, maybe a way to try and reckon with all of this pressure. Thank you. That's NPR's Dara Kerr. And if you or someone you know is in an emotional crisis, dial 988. I'm getting in the elevator and these two high school white boys tried to get on with me. And I just dove off. I said, y'all ain't killing me. I am scared of young white boys. If you white and under 21, I am running for the hill. What the hell is wrong with these white kids shooting up the school? Four days have passed since the small Iowa town of Perry was turned upside down by an act of violence. 11-year-old Amir Jolif was killed by a 17-year-old shooter while eating his breakfast at Perry High School Thursday morning. Seven others were hurt, including the school's principal and at least four students. Today, the governor extended her order to keep flags at half-staff through Thursday and signed a disaster proclamation opening up the state to resources to help that town. Recovered. Now, this whole ordeal lasted just minutes, but has changed countless lives forever. And KCCI is keeping you updated as the remaining questions are answered. We start with KCCI's Stacy Horse. And Stacy, we're hearing from the parents of the shooter for the very first time. And what did they have to say? 
Jody, we received a written statement this afternoon from an attorney for Jack and Aaron Butler. They are the parents of Dylan Butler, 17-year-old Perry High School student, police identified as last week's shooter. Dylan was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in the school Thursday. His parents' statements say they are devastated by what happened and had no inkling of the horrible violence that was going to follow after they dropped their son Dylan off at school Thursday. They went on to say that Dylan had been discussing future plans and that it felt like he was ready to get back to school after Christmas vacation. Their daughter was also in the school at the time of the shooting. Jack and Aaron Butler added, quote, we cannot repay the grace that we have been shown in public and private. We are helping authorities and will continue to help to provide answers to the question of why our son committed this senseless crime, unquote. They said they have no further comment. In an interview with the Associated Press published Friday, Erica Joliffe, the mother of 11-year-old Amir Joliffe, who was killed, said she was truly sorry for the butler's loss. Laura? Stacy, thank you. Well, the shooting in Perry prompted students from across central Iowa to leave class today and head to the state capitol. KCCI's Marcus McIntosh is there live tonight. And Marcus, this is all part of a protest from the group called March for Our Lives. That's very true, Laura. March for Our Lives Iowa is a youth-run gun violence prevention organization. Now, they say they're fighting for sensible policies that save lives. The group organized a statewide school walkout and rally at the state capitol today. About 50 or so East High School students marched to the capitol, telling us it was important for them to attend the rally and show their support for Perry High School and that school community. Some of the students at East know all too well what happened in, during a school shooting and the aftermath of a deadly shooting. In March of 2022, a shooting outside their school killed one and seriously injured two others. Those students are now showing their support for another community struck by violence. I think it's very, very important and that a lot of us should be participating in just because like you're affected, we're affected. And it's just a good thing to say that like, hey, we're supporting you and we see what happened and we're here with you. Well, tonight, the father of a boy gunned down in America's latest mass shooting is trying to grasp how this tragedy happened. On Thursday, a 17-year-old gunman shot and killed Amir Joliffe, wounded seven others, and then turned the gun on himself. The victim's father lives in Israel, which is currently a war. He says he never thought his son would die at school. The life of 11-year-old Amir Joliffe was cut short in a shooting in the building behind me, containing both Perry Middle and High School. But his biological father says he doesn't seek justice, but rather peace. For him to be gone and his life is, my son was amazing. That's Zavadia Fouch. Fouch reached out to KCCI and said he's the biological father of Amir Joliffe. Joliffe is the 11-year-old student who was shot and killed at Perry Middle and High School on Thursday. Fouch says Amir, who he calls a star, was a model of selflessness, even in the way he played with other kids. He used to leave toys out, you know, in the front and, and allow them, the friends, to come and play. And the ones that didn't have toys, he would give to them and allow them to take it home. Fouch says he's been living in Israel for the last seven years and hasn't seen Amir since this picture was taken at the pool five years ago. Amir was one of two kids Fouch had with his first wife, Erica. Fouch said he got the news of Amir's death Friday afternoon when Amir's mother told him what happened. I never encountered anything like this in my life. It's overwhelming. It's hard for me to 
to take in. He says living amidst the war in Israel, the shooting in Iowa was the last thing he expected to hear about. And like two countries are at war, but my son's life gets taken at school? It's like, how do that make sense? However, he says he has no ill will towards his son's assailant or his family. Even though he was taken and the way that he was taken, that his life continued to bring joy and excitement. Instead, he just hopes Amir leaves a smile on the faces of all those who knew him. I cannot be upset or mad and angry at someone that I did not know. I cannot judge. Fouch is working to make it back to Iowa in time for Joel's visitation and funeral later this week. In Perry, Ethan Humble, KCCI 8 News, Iowa's news leader. Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty by Dorothy Roberts. In November, WKBN was the first to tell you about Brittany Watts and how she'd been charged with abuse of a corpse. It's a story that has since gained national attention. Well, today, a Trumbull County grand jury declined to indict Watts, meaning her case won't go to trial and she's a free woman. There was a rally this afternoon on Warren's Courthouse Square, and that's where we find First News anchor Stan Boney live tonight. Stan. Well, the rally ended here about 20 minutes ago on Courthouse Square. It pretty much took place right around the gazebo here. Uh, it was attended by about 150 people, and they all gathered here to what ended up being a supporting rally for 34-year-old Brittany Watts, who today found out that she will not be charged with abuse of a corpse. And both Brittany Watts and her lawyer, Tracy Timko, did show up for that rally. So let's go right to the videotape. And we can show you uh, Brittany Watts walking up to the gazebo. She's dressed in a, a pink coat with a white stocking cap. Uh, she walked off onto the gazebo to a round of applause from the crowd and everybody here. Uh, again, it was a large crowd, about 150 people that showed up to support her. Well, now, this was all initially planned as a rally to support her cause. But then it became a celebration after the no bill announcement came at about 1 o'clock today from the Trumbull County Grand Jury. Now, now, here's what Brittany Watts had to say, along with her lawyer, Tracy Timko. And I want to thank my community, Warren, Warren, Ohio. I was born here. I was raised here. I graduated high school here. And I'm going to continue to stay here because I have to continue to fight. We have said from day one of all of this that Ohio law did not, does not, never supported these charges. Never supported it. And I am incredibly grateful that the grand jury today made that clear. Now, after the event was over, Brittany did not grant any interviews. In fact, following her brief remarks on the gazebo, uh, one of her cousins actually stood up and read a statement explaining where she stood on the entire issue. Now, at the end of her speech, Brittany, as you may have heard, it said she's not yet done fighting. We don't know if this means that there will be uh, other court cases or something that will follow what happened today. I did ask Tracy Timko, her lawyer, about that, and she says she does doesn't know what's going to happen next, but she will not be representing her in any type of lawsuit that would come after what happened today. Live in Warren, Stan Boney, WKBN 27 First News. You see, but the very fact that we go from event to event 
And I'm certain that because this young man not only killed black people, but, I mean, it's just disgusting that there were six black women and three black men who were killed, and an 87-year-old black woman was killed. And I said, when are we as black people going to have the level of self-respect and courage to really come out of the slave role, slave obey your master, turn the other cheek. May certain you turn the other cheek and you'll get your reward in heaven. And that's a slave role. We haven't maybe thought about it in those terms. President Biden delivered his second campaign speech of the year today at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina. As Laura Barone-Lopez explains, the president continues to warn about extremist threats to the nation's democracy. Speaking at the site where nine black churchgoers were murdered in Charleston in 2015, President Biden warned that the same hate that motivated their killer still threatens the country. The word of God was pierced by bullets and hate and rage propelled by not just gunpowder, but by a poison. Poison that has for too long haunted this nation. What is that poison? White supremacy. Oh, it is. It's a poison. J.A. Moore's sister, Myra Thompson, was one of the nine killed at the Mother Emanuel shooting. Moore is a Democratic state representative in South Carolina and joins me now. Representative Moore, thank you for being here. You were at the president's speech today as as he remembered those killed by the white supremacists nearly nine years ago, including your sister. What did you think of his remarks? I first was um, deeply moved by the fact that the president thought it was so important uh, as they kick off uh, President uh, Biden and Vice President Harris kicks off election to come here. I mean, I, th I thought the overall message was resolute. It was it was sobering. Um, and I was appreciative uh, that he came. What has your experience been like when you go to church now all these years since your sister was killed? It's difficult, to be honest with you. I, I still pray with my eyes open. Uh, it's a it's a place where uh, so many of us find uh, as our sanctuary. For me, it's a constant reminder of what evil looks like, what it feels like, and the residual effects of uh, white supremacy and domestic terrorism. And you don't go to AME often, correct? You worship at a different church, but what is it like when you visit AME now? Yeah, it's the, the unfortunate reality is, is that I, I oftentimes uh, end up at Mother Emanuel uh, in a direct uh, concert with uh, talking about or uh, commemorating that devastating faithful night. It's, it's difficult for me every time I step into that church. And it's something that over the past almost nine years I've struggled with. I mean, it, I would love to, to uh, turn back the hands of time to before that terrible night and be able to find sanctuary in such a, a historic uh, place that's meant so much to so many people, but it's very difficult for me. Today was a very, very challenging, difficult day for me to sit in, a, in that pew 
thinking about my sister and the eight other parishioners. Since the Charleston shooting, mass shooters who killed people in Pittsburgh, El Paso, and Buffalo were all motivated by racism or anti-Semitism. Do you think that white supremacist violence has gotten worse in the years since the Charleston shooting? Well, it's gotten worse since Donald Trump was president. Uh, Donald Trump um, has given a hall pass for white supremacy. Uh, not, not that I'm saying that the former president himself is a white supremacist, uh, but what he has done uh, is stoke that uh, suppress uh, feelings and emotions out of so many Americans uh, that uh, that are these MAGA Republicans. So uh, not not in a, just a, the aftermath of the shooting, but the maturation of Donald Trump going down those escalators. You know, we just we've just seen uh, increase in in the white supremacy um, in the forefront uh, more so than before. And do you think that enough has been done locally or federally to address this type of violence? South Carolina is one of two states that still doesn't have a hate crime bill uh, as their law. Uh, even after something so tragic happened to my sister and those eight other parishioners, one of whom, Senator Commitment Pinkney, was the pastor of the church and a sitting senator at the time, and still we haven't been able to do that. No, I mean, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. When it comes to uh, combating racism and, and so on and so forth, and we need to do a lot more. So, no, I think there's a lot more to be done. But, I, but I'm going to say this to make sure I'm clear. Uh, that's not because of the my Biden administration has not tried. They've done a, a, a wonderful job of pushing forward um, individuals and policies to, to change that. But you're talking about almost 400 years of discrimination a country that was the bedrock of the country was designed and with a racist uh, background. So no, three years or four years, they're going to change it alone. It's a lot more work that needs to be done. President Biden warned today of the increase in far-right violence and an attempt to erase history, be it the history of January 6th or of slavery. How much faith do you have that America can have an honest conversation about the same white supremacist violence that took your sister and that has killed other people since? One of the things that um, has inspired me over the past almost nine years is people's willingness to have these conversations about race, whereas before people didn't feel like they had permission. Um, but as you can imagine, I, I have conversations with strangers, with family members, with colleagues, with so many people now about uh, people that may have had predetermined uh, uh, feelings about people because of their race that they didn't even know before, but they're willing to explore now uh, in the aftermath of this tragedy and that is in the forefront. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, that for sure that is happening. But what I'm most worried about is that what we haven't seen is is in a white supremacy in itself. One thing to talk about it is another thing to change. And I think we have a long, long way to go to do that. Representative J.A. Moore of South Carolina, thank you for your time. Thank you for covering the story. Thank you. We're making it happen now. We've got the spirit. A lot of spirit, yeah. We've got the spirit. Just watch it happen now.
I'm Diane Maceda. We have breaking news. We've just learned the Justice Department will seek the death penalty for the convicted shooter in the racially motivated mass shooting at a Buffalo, New York supermarket. The 20-year-old has already been sentenced to life without parole in the state case, but he still faces 27 federal counts, including hate crime and firearm charges. For more, let's bring in ABC News' Morgan Norwood and ABC News legal contributor Brian Buckmeyer. Brian, what goes into this decision of whether or not to seek the death penalty and why seek it here but not at the state level? Morning, Dan, or afternoon, sorry. Well, what goes into it is the actual charges themselves, and then also they look to the aggravating factors that they believe they can prove in a case to ultimately get them uh, past that threshold of the death penalty. I'm thinking of the heinousness of the crime, the number of victims, the fact that a crime occurred while the murders were occurring as well, as well as the preparation and the premeditation of the crime. These factors, I think, go into it. And in terms of answering the question why the death penalty at the federal level and not the state level, well, the state of New York doesn't have the death penalty, but the federal government does. And so that's why we're seeing uh, different sentencing levels at different levels of, of, of criminal culpability. Usual is it to seek the death penalty in a federal case? It's not very unusual. We, we've seen it in a number of times. However, I think it's more unusual on the back end as to whether or not it happens. Uh, we saw 13 federal uh, executions near the end of former President Donald Trump's uh, uh, presidency. But before that, there was a 17-year hiatus. In fact, currently, there's a moratorium on the death penalty in the federal government through President Joe Biden. So really, uh, when we talk about the potential for someone being executed, it's really about what future presidents may think about whether or not someone should be put to death. Morgan, what have you heard from the families on this? Well, Diane, I can say that this was a racially motivated attack. And so we know that the DOJ, the Justice Department, has faced growing pressure to send a, a clear and strong message about these types of cases. So I'd imagine for the family, I mean, look, they've had uh, delays with this case before. I mean, the time that it's taken for the DOJ to decide, I've heard from family members say that this was agonizing for them. So for, for them, this is the first step as they continue uh, the journey on closure and healing. Brian, there's a federal hearing set for this afternoon. What do you expect to come out of that? I think the announcement that they are seeking the death penalty, the justification for it as well, and, and I, there might be some negotiation as to when the next court date is, uh, because as we've already you've already told us, the the shooter has already pled guilty in state court. One would assume that if he can avoid the death penalty through a plea negotiation, or maybe even plead guilty and do what we saw in Florida with the uh, Florida school shooting where he ultimately got uh, life in prison, this might be a situation where we avoid any litigation as to guilt or innocence and move towards sentencing where pleading guilty could give you a mitigating factor to help avoid the death penalty. Morgan, how is the community coping with the tragedy and with the fact that this case is still ongoing? Yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it is it's incredibly tough for them, right? I mean, this is heartbreaking. It shattered this predominantly black community here. And so they are on the journey for closure. They're on the journey for healing. And so that is what they're looking for. They're continuing to reel. And even this process alone is going to be critical uh, as they continue to search for that. I will say that there, this shooting, you know, brought up a lot of anger, a lot of hurt, a lot of outrage. So it's likely that we're still seeing that linger even as this process continues, Diane. All right, Morgan Norwood, Brian Buckmeyer, thank you both. Because ugly white women used to say they got raped by niggas. I didn't know a nigga raped me. Yeah, guys be going, hey, you sure? <laughs> yeah, they go round up some niggas, you know, like, oh, you were down last week, you know what to do, don't you? Well, come on down again, will you? We gotta have a lineup. <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun unless you got picked. That was your ass. <laughs> mm.
Welcome back. The city of Concord will have to pay out a record civil settlement for its part in wrongfully convicting Ronnie Long. You'll remember Long spent 44 years in prison for a rape he did not commit. After detectives and prosecutors hid evidence that could have proven his innocence, our cameras were there the day he was released from prison. Now he just won a $25 million settlement. The city also issuing the 68-year-old a formal apology. WCNC Charlotte's Michelle Bowden has been following this story since the beginning and has the very latest, all new at 11. This is the biggest settlement in North Carolina's history for a wrongful conviction, one of the biggest ever in the U.S., but Long says it's the apology, something that's very rare in these cases that means so much. It has been a long time coming. Ronnie is relieved. He is relieved that finally there is a public recognition and an apology of what was done to him and his family. Ronnie Long was just 20 years old and living in Concord when, as a young black man, he was accused of raping a prominent white woman. Police built a bogus case lying on the stand, hiding evidence that proved his innocence and tampering with the jury. Not only did law enforcement officers lie, but prosecutors were engaged in an active campaign to ensure that despite the evidence of Ronnie's innocence, he remained incarcerated all these years, well past the time it was obvious that they had a wrongful conviction. In August of 2020, Long was exonerated and freed after 44 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. The governor pardoned him and the state compensated him just $750,000. He told us then it wasn't nearly enough. North Carolina intensely put me in the penitentiary. And you tell me still $150,000? It was 44 years of my life. Long filed a civil suit last year, and now the city of Concord is paying up with a record-setting $22 million settlement and an apology. Here, the city of Concord really owned up to the past misdeeds of city employees, which is really remarkable. I don't know of any other case where a municipality has issued such an apology as part of a civil settlement. As part of the settlement, the city of Concord, quote, acknowledges and accepts responsibility for the significant errors in judgment and willful misconduct by previous city employees that led to Long's wrongful conviction and imprisonment. The State Bureau of Investigation is also paying out $3 million, making the $25 million settlement the biggest in North Carolina's history for a wrongful conviction. I think the message it sends is that both the city and the State Bureau of Investigation recognized that there was significant harm done here. And although money can't fix it, I think symbolically when it's a large number like this one, I think that sends an equal message of apology. Does the number sort of indicate how egregious the case was? I think it's a big indicator of how egregious this case was. We're told Long should actually have a check in hand this week. We've spoken with him and his family. They are relieved and we hope to sit down with them on camera in the coming weeks. Back to you. The man, race, race, class, class, genre, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. Now the latest in the attack on a Las Vegas judge caught on camera last week. The defendant back in court on Monday coming face to face with that same judge. Kena Whitworth joins us now with more. Good morning, Kena. Robin, good morning. But this time there was added safety measures and security. Deobra Redden returned to court where an injured judge, Kathy Holthus, handed down his sentence for prior crimes, but it's not over for him. He'll see a different judge today for charges in that dangerous courtroom attack. 
I want to make it clear that I am not changing or modifying the sentence I was in the process of imposing last week before I was interrupted by defendant's actions. This morning, the Las Vegas judge, who was attacked by a defendant in her own courtroom last week, now sentencing that very same man to up to four years in prison for his original case. Any other issues that may arise from the events that occurred last Wednesday will be handled at a future date by a different court. The defendant, 30-year-old Deobra Redden, surrounded by officers and seen shackled, wearing a spit mask and orange mitts, didn't speak during the brief hearing. He now faces several new charges, including battery of a protected person, intimidating a public official, and extortion. Last Wednesday, chaos erupting during Redden's original sentencing, a repeat offender who had pled guilty to an April battery charge. Redden asking Judge Mary Kay Holthus for leniency. I feel that, like, I shouldn't be, like, sent to prison for a second time. The judge reminding Redden of his lengthy criminal record before denying a request for probation. Three felonies, a gross, nine misdemeanors, multiple DVs. Got a lot going on, sir. Moments later, Redden leaping over the defense table and the judicial bench, landing on top of the judge, sparking a brawl with Holthus, a court-martial, and a clerk, all sustaining injuries. Redden's family telling our affiliate he had suffered from mental illness. I just think his reactions were not premeditated. It was triggered because he seemed to have been pleading for his... Uh, his freedom. Now, judicial safety is a concern across the country. At the federal level, more than 1,300 threats were made against protected persons, and that includes judges in 2022. And, Robin, what that doesn't include is judges at the state level. Mm, but, Kana, those threats have largely moved online. Yeah, Robin, they have. And since they shifted online, there was an assessment done in 2021, and it actually found that the Marshal Service lacked the resources to even adequately assess them and that ultimately a judge's safety is at greater risk when they're outside the courthouse. My Guys. All right, Kana, and, you know, Robin, you. we just saw this week that swatting attack on the judge overseeing mm -hmm. exactly. Donald Trump's case in Washington. This is mm -hmm. just not stopping. No, it's not. And that's why Judge Salas, who we know, yeah. has been very outspoken about um, protecting these judges in various mm -hmm. states. As, as she should be. As they all should be protected. Five, four, three. She's pure alligator. Pure white. Two. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. One. Albino I'm Christina Mondragon, your Lafayette Parish reporter here at my alma mater, the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And it's no surprise that a certain mascot has been missing on game days and on campus. But now a campaign could change that. UL has seen many changes with mascots over the years, from bulldogs to raging Cajun chickens. And up until 10 years ago, the raging Cajun mascot Cayenne was beloved by many, but the costumes became too costly for the university to keep up, and the college does not have an official mascot now. A former student is looking to revamp the college mascot by campaigning for Albino Al Boudreau, an albino alligator to represent the school and the Cajun culture. One mother is happy to see this campaign not only for the school, but also for her young son, Sam, who has ocular albinism. It's also really neat for 
someone like my son who happens to have ocular albinism, I think that he might come to appreciate the connection that he could have with this mascot um, because of their shared condition. I think that that would be really cool for him because it's not something that he sees represented often in the media or anywhere. To see more photos of Al, check out the creator's Facebook page at Corey Sanwa, and a link will be posted on our KTC webpage. Reporting in Lafayette Parish, Christina Mondragon, KTC, TV3. What is our objective for living? You know, I mean, just look at the list of things that's on our list. And, and, and you know, what does it consist of? I mean, you got white men sailing around, I mean, in space right now as we talk. And, uh, yeah, hooking up all kinds of stuff, I mean, to, you know, to tap into people's telephones and all that. You know I mean, they're always up to something on a grand scale. You know I, mean? I don't know nothing about, you know, being no astronaut and staying up in space, I mean, for three months. And homeboy, I mean, he's just standing there saying, you know, trying to slip some uh, extra can of Red Bull in his jacket. You know, <laughs> that's his accomplished for the next two years, right? Wow. Wow. Mm. Now compare those two things. Here's some technicians floating around in space, been there three months. All kinds of technical stuff around them. All kinds of stuff that they're doing spacewalks out there and whatnot. Hooking up all kinds of stuff, running the world. And just like I said, now pan that camera from that <laughs> back down to Earth. Oh, boy. And you see this Mark Zuckerberg building this $270 million bunker? If you have a billion dollars, we have learned that you can do whatever you want to do. When Elon Musk wants to send space things in space, he don't have to ask nobody's permission. Congress don't meet. Senate don't meet. No police department got to be warned. He don't need a permit. None of that. If you got a billion dollars, you do what you want to do, and then you tell them what you did. Right. And that's how it goes. What he been on the bunker, a two hundred seventy million dollar bunker? What do you know that we don't know, Cat? Kim Jong Un. <laughs> what I don't know what you don't know. Do you understand that people that are not very bright are in charge of nuclear bombs all across the country? Mm-hmm. That's what he knows. He knows that thirty percent of all weapons systems are running off regular Wi-Fi. So what does that mean? That means if a solar flare or a meteor hits either one of those, literally a bomb can go off just because the system accidentally got turned off. Yeah, that's what he knows. The the people that are in power know that the people that are running the most complicated and deadliest things on the planet are just an average idiot. And you know lots of idiots. I do. Yep. And these these people are not special. Back in the day they were. Yeah. Not today. Not today. Context of white supremacy. Who is 
these people context of white supremacy gusty renegade and for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy for non-white people victims of white supremacy today's date saturday january 13 2024 so i have been told our weekly compensatory call-in not for spectators if you have thoughts questions counter racist suggestions the number to dial 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate they were calling the University of Washington's black male quarterback who is actually named Michael Penix Jr. P-E-N-I-X Penix Jr. They lost the national championship game to the University of Michigan. They were calling him Michael Penis. Number again, 605-313-5164, the code code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. That's the sort of Wellsing moment, ISIS papers logic. That's in my brain computer when I say Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin with, whoa, this nigger's got the prostate. Can he even tell us about his genital problems? Would you get to look at your genitals? Wait a minute. And then Michael Penn, we can't even call him by his name. Penis. We got to see that penis, boy. Got to see that penis with that big brown ball. And that's about what they were saying all night. Monday. Put it on my social media at until justice always at the genital level okay schedule we will be broadcasting we had a reschedule I even had a listener it was maybe two weeks back it was couldn't have been that long because it was 2024 event we were supposed to have a white woman on the program from a different part of the world to discuss white supremacy and specifically white women's role in all of this it's going to be earlier than normal had a non-white person said I tried to tune in early broadcast and it wasn't even working we had to reschedule and all that we actually had to reschedule a few programs we rescheduled a program from this week because Dorothy Roberts hey if you're going to trek across the continent come over here to hang out in Seattle give a talk hey I'm going to do my best to see if I can be here live so we rescheduled there too all of that is coming home to roost now what that means is we will be broadcasting every day from Tuesday for like a good week or so starting on Tuesday the only reason it is not Monday is because I guess other people were doing MLK things or I have no idea but we will be on every day Tuesday forward all the same time Uh, this 
very uh, no breaks for a while every day for the following week except for ironically the holiday so we will take monday off broadcast some of our earlier content from dr king and then we will be on and rolling tuesday for man so and really even monday is not a day off because all of the programs that are coming subsequently are with authors so there will be lots of books man that program for tuesday i had forgotten all about it because that was one we talked the end of last year so many other things going on let me see what the weather is it is 24 flipping degrees in seattle so my brain doesn't work once it gets below like 37 38 degrees my brain computer doesn't work quite as efficiently so i forgot all about that like oh my god oh it's cold oh it's like oh yeah that white person she wrote that book about how her relatives went out and lynched a negro oh yeah <laughs> like yeah that's tuesday be here wednesday as well lots of white white guests only ah, white guests only but tuesday wednesday Thursday, just rolling normal time, same time for all of the programs, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Now, somewhere in there along day 10, we are going to get that program back that was rescheduled. So there is going to be one way down the road this month that is a little bit earlier than five. But everything starting Tuesday will be normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. 5 p.m. Pacific, I will give advance notice when we get closer to that one irregular program. Once I'm solidified, I think by Tuesday, I'll take King's holiday and I'll calibrate. Book club selection, I think I have made my choice. New book, we finished Harry Dunn's Standing My Ground. We'll see how his congressional campaign goes. We'll pick our new book, New Year, New Book starting Thursday Catherine Massey book club let's go Buffalo Catherine Massey book club new book on Thursday and in fact I'll make sure I say it on Tuesday so you can go to the library to get the book it is a book club about reading if you really 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 gotta talk or want to talk participate follow along reading more important than watching television occasionally once a year maybe get the book I'm pretty sure all of the books that I'm thinking about reading you could get at your library even if you don't get the hard copy e-copy you could get it for free and just casually follow along from time to time. So, oh, okay, this is what they're talking. Okay, okay. Check out the pictures, that sort of thing. Reading is more important than watching television. Listener-supported counter-racist radio invest. If you think the cows is constructive, fifteen uninterrupted years of counter-racist broadcasting. I will stand on our work. What have we been doing for 15 years? One, I can just point. Who did I just say was here? University of Washington, Thursday and Friday in the archives. 
double entendre for that in this context in the archives I said Professor Dorothy Roberts what have we been doing for 15 years Dorothy Roberts multiple time guest on the program victim of white supremacy I guess that's a cowbell too (laughs) first time first time in 2009 now that might be one where I would say now hey given everything that has happened curmudgeon that I am all of the chaos and conflict that is the system of white supremacy racism we started once we got back on the air 2009 had Dorothy Roberts as a guest on the program in August and now 15 years later still talking about Dorothy Roberts chatted with her on Thursday she's still writing books about racism and the same subject matter and unfortunately saying that everything she said in those books we talked about all that time all those years back is still true and in fact even got as she spoke on Wednesday I really got to stand by my work she put a picture of Elaine Riddick on the screen it was later on in her talk and she didn't have enough time because they were going to do the Q&A I got to ask a question as did others so proud it was all cows participants who asked the first questions like we beat everybody and it was particularly once I saw that it was a white person who was going to go third like oh yeah we should be first in fact it should be all non-white people victims do you all have any questions and then if we have time left all right any white people if you have a maybe maybe but that's how it worked out that's the way if you go to a talk somebody talks about racism white supremacy or anything constructive you should always you should always think of at least one question don't be at least mr fuller has that in the book specifically greatest spectator you should always underline bold face print always think of one question it should be very difficult as confused and ignorant and poorly informed as we victims of white supremacy are Gus T renegade included top of the list it should be nigh on impossible for you to sit and hear someone talk about racism white supremacy for 60 minutes 30 minutes 3 minutes and you don't have one question you understood everything perfectly they didn't say anything that didn't make sense or seemed inaccurate or you didn't want more details a source a book didn't make spark something else a different subject matter that they maybe they didn't touch on that you'd like them to address nothing greatest spectator and especially if you are there with your offspring or where younger non-white people non-white children are observing all of this oh yes ask at least one question especially if it's a white person speaking anyway so she put Elaine Riddick's picture on the board and I knew who that was even though she didn't say Elaine Riddick's name nor did she have a caption saying oh yes this is Elaine Riddick also North Carolina where they sterilized her she was raped and then they sterilized her without consent whatever that would mean for a child but they sterilized her and I knew who that was because we had her son as a guest on the program 2012 that's what we've been doing for 15 uninterrupted years in addition to Dorothy Roberts herself on the program repeatedly 
Then she referenced the AFIA Center in Texas. Things that they've done to advocate for black mothers, victims of white supremacy, when those white women's social workers go to inspect pride. What are you doing? Who's been sleeping here? What are you doing? You're taking care of your job. Up, oh, up, oh, that's abuse. That's what oh, we're going to take your job. All of that, the AFIA Center in Texas going to advocate for black mommies. I know the AFIA Center. They were guests on the cows. I even get to do an extra special, you know, cornbread shuffle on that one because we had the AFIA Center executive director, Miss Jones, as a guest on the cows end of 2017. And I especially remember that because that's when my residence flooded and even under apocalyptic flood i didn't know it at the time that i was going to be racially dis or not right well yeah race was anyway but i was going to be displaced from my residence for the next year and a half even under those circumstances we did not cancel Miss Jones came on the program. We talked about black female reproductive rights. That was one when I recognized both of them. Like, oh man, we've had them as guests on the program. And Dorothy Roberts I was like, dang, I thought they said Gusty hates black females. Didn't they say that? Haven't they said that repeatedly? Dang. Have you all read Dorothy Roberts? Hmm. Anyway, that's what we have. But that like is a is a can't even say a teaspoon like a half teaspoon of what we have been doing for 15 uninterrupted years well over 2,000 programs that's how I said it's not even really a teaspoon because I mean eh, 2,000 programs that's nothing not nothing but I mean counter racist grind 15 years Listener-supported, hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com, PayPal button in the top right corner, beneath the button you'll see the links, PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, gratitude to all of the investors who have kept us broadcasting for 15 uninterrupted years. I even thought we went to uh, Dorothy. It was actually a panel. So it's a big group uh, discussion on the second day that Dorothy Roberts was here. All black people on the panel. And I was told one of the participants of like 200 people here. Us going to see all of this. I was told one of the participants said, oh, I'm such a fan of Dorothy Roberts. This might even been the first day she was here. I'm such a big fan of Dorothy Roberts. That word F-A-N. And I think they asked and said, oh, wow, which which books did you really like? I said, oh, I haven't read any of her books. Victims guaranteed qualified. She doesn't exactly write the shortest books. Lots of footnotes. People don't have lots of time and such. But that I've said for a long time, that is widespread in terms of people talking about authors, sometimes interviewing authors citing them where they've not read their work. That is a major problem, especially if we're saying that, you know, these people have greatly influenced our thinking and we really have high regard for the work that they've done. Dang, let's, you know, 
Let's sit down and read like a teaspoon, like all the technology. You could be reading on your watch. You could be reading on your phone, tablet, all the tech. You can get the book for free from the library. I can guarantee you they got all of Dorothy Roberts' books in the library. I was even thinking back. Now, I own all of her books now, but there was a time when I did not. When she was a guest on the program the first time around 2009, I didn't own her book. Killing the Black Body. I got it from the library. For free. Second time around, 2010. She came on the program. Summertime. I remember that because I did feel some type of way being in the house because it was really pretty here in Washington State that time. And I was cooped up inside reading Shattered Bonds. Any hoodles. But I did not own that book at the times. At the time. I got it from the library. In fact, even... Fatal Invention, which is so important, also by Dorothy Roberts. She was a guest on the program 2011. That book I didn't own at the time. I do now. That was one of the first ebooks that I got. I remember I felt some trepidation, like my highlights are going to be lost, and then I'm going to be confused. I'm going to sound all stupid when Professor Roberts comes to talk with us. And uh, uh, was really nervous about all that because I had not. I was used to the hard copy and having it in front of me and this newfangled white technology and all the rest. But it worked out fine, and all in the archives. Really important book, Fatal Invention, where she again makes the point. The only purpose for racial classifications are to practice white supremacy, which is exactly nearly full of junior codification, logic, counter-racist logic. Reading more important than watching television and even her most recent book, Torn Apart, is also available at the library standing by our work context of white supremacy hopefully we've been worthy of your time and energy but read because I and the same thing with Dorothy Roberts people saying that they're fans so-called of her work but they've never read I see that with Dr. Welsing Mr. Fuller Harriet A. Wash I mean you could just pick anybody really it is widespread it's certainly not just non-white people but that you know doesn't really help our point to say that white people do this too we really, we need people to be thorough, scholarly, using their brain computer. That's what we need. That's universal woman, universal man. That's what we need. Not watching Netflix, YouTube. Anywho, uh, it was grand. I say again, take advantage. If you live near a college, university, community college, any of that, even really make sure you check your, your local library, community centers and such just check the board, they'll normally or check on your phone, go online and see, they'll normally have a calendar events, check and see what's coming, now especially if you are at a university college, oh man, they will have probably lots of things and Dr. King holiday is Monday Black History Month is coming up. They will probably have lots of events where people like Dorothy Roberts and others might drop through. They would have Dr. Wilson come for some of these events. They would have Neely Fuller Jr. come for some of these events. Dr. Cambon. They might have some of these people swing by, have a constructive book, 
to read or even some white people you could ask questions all of the above look for any of these events see if anything constructive comes uh, take advantage if you can I'm sure they will have something around you dub I'll uh, try and uh, look as well I've tried to do that over the years uh, myself we've had lots of uh, guests and what have you that have been on the cows program come through here uh, come through here being Washington State Seattle I'm Dr. Vanessa Grubbs folks some of the lovely Dr. Vanessa Grubbs uh, black female she is a medical doctor uh, she was a guest on the program. She talked about her book, Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers. She is a gorgeous nephrologist. I think I can truthfully say she is the most gorgeous nephrologist I have ever met. Truthful statement, but she actually came to Seattle. I went to the event. It's in the archives. I shared it, right? Got the audio. And then she was a guest on the program two times. So look out for those types of event, anything, especially again, if you have children, man, again, you can go, you can ask a question, you can pay attention and study the audience. What did you think? Do you see why this is such a big problem and people are coming and talking about this on a regular basis? All of that. Take advantage. Let's see. And then even maybe you can take some of your relatives if they're resistant to talking about racism might change things around for them. Anywho. Uh, before I get back to the infamous Cat Williams, I did want to make one point. All of the people on the panel for the Thursday event, which is in the archives, Professor Dorothy Roberts and then the other four black uh, panelists, uh, the event was titled Torn Apart, which is the title of Dorothy Roberts' most recent book, Anti-Blackness and broken systems title of the event and they had it in all capital letters bold face print professor roberts specifically and it was in unison echoed it was one of those like amen right right on tell him sister right on it's in the archives you can hear it she said importantly the system is not broken the system is working as designed brutalizing black people and that was where you hear the right on amen, amen right right it's in the archives the title of the event is torn apart anti-blackness and broken systems now, I didn't have the flyer directly in front of me until after the event. In fact, this didn't this contradiction did not stand out to me until I was writing the description so that I could put the audio in the archive. And I was like, dang, I thought they made a big to do about saying that the system is not broken. This is what the system was designed to do. That system being the system of white supremacy, racism, and it is not lost on Gus T that they have systems, plural I am saying system, but you know, you deal with one at a time. So I wrote to every member of the panel and the non-white person who I suspect has a white parent who was in charge of the event. Six individuals. We'll see if they write back. But this is what I said. I was fortunate to attend your January 11th panel at the University of Washington, and it was a wonderful experience. I was able to encourage a pal to come along 
And she was also overjoyed with your collective knowledge and gratitude for black scholarship. I wanted to ask you all a quick question. The panel was titled Torn Apart, Anti-Blackness and Broken Systems. Unless I'm mistaken, the panel seemed to explicitly emphasize that the system is not broken. It is functioning correctly as designed, harming black people. It seemed the panel was in agreement about this important point. I thought this was a significant contradiction from the title of the event. Should students and activists be thinking that the system is broken? Or should we remember and emphasize that the immense harm to black people is the result of an ongoing, well-maintained system? I thank you all again for your time and energy. Stay warm and keep up your life-saving work until justice. So I emailed everybody. We shall see what they say. You all can let me know as well. Now, I might have misread all of this. It was a long day and looking at all that, I didn't have the flyer in front of me. Maybe they even did that deliberately so that they could make that point. But when I thought about that, I said, well, in that case, I would put broken explicitly exclusively in quotes so that audience members know we want you to think about because that sort of rhetoric jargon is used regularly these systems are broken these systems no they're not no they in fact I was even going to add to that question would it have been more accurate even more thought-provoking to ask or to title it breaking how to break, either breaking or how to break anti-black systems, because they had anti-black in the titling of it, would that have been more accurate? That way we're making it explicit that these systems have been designed to be anti-black, so they would have to be broken, replaced with a just system. But I thought that was too much. I just wanted to stay focused on the, the contradiction. Anyway, we'll see what they say. If I get a response, I will share. Now back to Cat Williams. I will, full disclaimer, I'm not a Cat Williams fan. I know some folks who've been listening to the cows for a while are aware Gusty did work at a Negro comedy club in Atlanta. So there is connection to Negro comedians to some degree, but I mean, I did not enjoy all of that then. Certainly not now. I am no Cat Williams fan. Never have been. Did not watch his infamous interview with Shannon Sharp, which just, you know, 2024 interview with Shannon Sharp, also victim of white supremacy, black male. Millions upon millions upon millions of people watched this event as though, you know, these were billionaires talking about, you know, the state of global affairs. And, you know, we're going to glean information that is going to help us better understand life, the universe, how to replace white supremacy with justice. I would not have paid much more attention to all of this. But I was scrolling through and the link popped up on my page 
for Cat Williams talking about Mark Zuckerberg. And I thought, what? Because people had been, you know, talking about and links and everything to Cat Williams talking, you know. I'm going to tell you a thing or two about that, Diddy. Let me spend five minutes telling you about Steve Harvey. I know a thing about Taraji P. Henson. Ooh, let me tell you about Kevin Hart. I'm accustomed to all that. I've heard, you know, black people, we do a number criticizing, finding fault with other dark people. Our brothers and sisters, as we say, we love that. That is Negro culture, really. Sanford and Son. Red Fox, the great. Uh, but we do all of that. And I said, when I asked Dr. Ward a few weeks back, I said, do you remember black people ridiculing white people? And he thought for a minute, he said, no. I was waiting. Cat Williams, I thought, oh, maybe, maybe how they phrase it, what is the, the Negro jargon? He's going to go in on Mark Zuckerberg. No. Not really. Just talking about his thoughts on why he would get this quarter billion dollar bunker. I said, oh, okay. He didn't he didn't he didn't go in on Mark Zuckerberg. I guess he was he was saving all that energy for Diddy and the rest of us, his cousins. But the thing that caught my attention was as he was getting to the end of that segment there, and he was talking about the bunker and he said he knows that these people now that are in charge, nuclear weapons and all of that, these people that are in charge are just basic idiots. He said, now, these people used to be special, but not anymore. Now, I already told you what question one, who are you talking about? That's what I mean, like, man, man, I was going to play. I looked at the transcript. I was not going to sit because, I mean, this is like a three-hour interview. Like, oh, my God, come on. Uh, I looked at the transcript. He does say explicitly, Cat Williams, that he is scared of white women. I'm scared of white people, period. But he does say that. So right on, a little bit more honesty. But I mean, dang. Is it the person that is is known? I'm infamous. Is it, I got no filter. I just go in. I just got to tell it like I keeps it real. I got to keep it a hundred. Are you talking about white people? That's what I mean. Remember, we had caller in the courthouse down at the courthouse in Florida. We told us a few weeks ago the black dude. He came in, big tall black male. And they went to pull their guns on him. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You coming in here to rape? I wonder what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And he put his hands up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hands up. Don't shoot. Hands up. Don't shoot. Whoa, 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 whoa. And they finally calmed down. And he said, whoa. Got my high blood pressure. Oh, my Lord. My prostate is about to kill me. Let me sit down. He told his wife. He said, whoa. Oh, I think. I think tall people. They just give us a tough time, you know, babe. That's what it is. He started and he said, well, you know, I seen tall white people. You know, maybe I think, I think it, it, it might be racism. 
I said, what? You got big, tall, strapping, privileged black male. And see, he had to... I, I don't think it's the fact that I'm a big dude. I just think it's the fact that it's racism. Come on, man. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. Don't tell me nothing about uh, how rough and tough and keep it real the black people are. We can't. You can't even say you got all this filth, flooring and profanity and everything. Else. You can't even just say that new crop of white people, man. That old generation of white people, they were some, they were special. Now, even that, now, what, what, what do you mean exactly? The old generation, they were special. Now, again, I'm assuming here, because I don't know, maybe he didn't mean white people. Maybe he's talking about a different group of people that was special back then. Who are you talking about? And what do you mean that they were special? That's even one. I would have to get Mr. Sharp in too. Because he nodded in agreement immediately as though he understood exactly what Cat Williams was saying. Did you know who he was talking about? Did you already know he meant white people too? You understood what he meant when he said that they used to be special? I did not. I would need all of that like broken down. And then he said that we got idiots. Now, now that I'm familiar with that. I've heard that before. Isn't that the most common refrain I mean the entire choir of the world gets up in unison we have here we go one two dumb white people <laughs> I get so tired of saying it for Cat Williams and everybody else in the universe I'm not a smart person but ladies gentlemen children regardless of how dumb white people how dumb you all think white people are. They are still in charge all over the known universe. Even if they are dumb. We can't be that smart. They got their foot on our neck still just saying do you see how common that is that's something that stands out to me greatly how is it so many different people we end up at the same conclusion dumb white people dumb white people boy we got these dumb white people man we got these dumb white people but they're still in charge how is it that you got all of these dumb white people who rule the world and kick black people around for fun. Maybe I missed it. Hopefully Cat Williams will not excoriate me. Although I did think about that. And I said well you know. He did get like 100 million views. So if he disses us. Maybe we'll get like 20 new non-white followers. So I can live with that. That's no problem. Let's see. Uh, the I'll just get in a few quick notes and then we'll nab folks who dialed in uh, with commentary. Number one, I was stunned. Peyton Gendron tops Buffalo shooter the death penalty 
for the federal charges, I did not think that was going to happen at all. I went to Buffalo. I thought he pled guilty. I was in court. He pled guilty. Life in prison, no parole. I said, oh, they'll do the same thing uh, for the federal trial, and that'll be that. That's why you plead guilty, and that's why you go through that whole charade and be tearful when he was in court. And I'm sorry, and I didn't know, and I got radicalized online. They emboldened me, and and he did all that nonsense. I said then, I said then, this, you know, he's got that federal trial pending. He doesn't want the death penalty. They'll probably do the same thing. And in fact, what I was thinking was they didn't have a trial in Buffalo. That's the whole reason I wanted to go to Buffalo trial. I was excited. The cows doing trial coverage can go and be on social media during the day and then give the trial update every evening and what happened and information. That's what I was looking for. I wanted the evidence. That's why you want the trial. Let's go through all the evidence, just like they did with the rental James. And I wanted. So what was the what was the radicalization, as they say? What was he doing online leading up to this? Who was that law enforcement officer that he was talking to when he was plotting how he was going to go to the Negro area of Buffalo and blah, blah, blah. And all. Let's get all of that out in the light of day so we can scrutinize everything. That's part of why I wanted to go to Buffalo. And there were black people who said, oh, no, nah, they're not doing that. They don't want all that. They didn't even release the evidence. When the trial concluded in Buffalo state level, none of that evidence had been released. They said, okay, this part's over. Maybe we could, but we still got the federal trial. So you still got to wait. They said, they said the day he was sentenced, they probably have identical evidence. He said, I doubt there is probably one paper of difference between the evidence that they have for the federal trial and the state trial. Now, a year has passed, so I'm sure they've been investigating. Maybe they've uncovered some new information between now and then, done some interviews. I'm sure maybe they got something extra over that time period, but it's a lot of overlap. They really didn't release a lot of information because of all this was pending. Some people suspiciously thought they don't want us to see all of this. They don't want us to be able to examine all this and to really grasp What was the lead up? Let's overstand everything that made this event take place. But wow, death penalty. Wow. If it is going to be the death penalty, then with, hey, trial, then it would be back to, well, back to Buffalo. Not that I would be excited about that, but that was the whole reason for going there in the first place. They postponed a flipping football game this weekend, a playoff football game big high stakes brain damage they postponed because of bad weather in Buffalo this weekend I would hitchhike to go back if they're going to have a trial for the death penalty pay attention to Buffalo and in fact you talk about emboldened oh my god the word martyr All of those white supremacists to Dylan Roof is my dude and Peyton Chendron is my dude and yeah, they inspire. Oh my, if he gets the death, that would be something I would pay attention to for sure. 
Very surprised. I did not think he was going to get the death penalty. Let's see. Uh, Amir Jolof, that is the black male, 11-year-old. He was shot and killed in Iowa. Again, we had just been talking all that about Iowa. I did not know Amir Jolof was shot three times by that cowardly 17-year-old white student. You got to shoot an 11-year-old three times? Maybe Amir Jolof. Now, I've seen him. He was out in the snow. I don't know. Maybe he had a growth spurt. Maybe he morphs into some sort of Marvel superhero and looks like he could play professional linebacker and has rippling biceps and triceps and forearms and he'll choke you out and bulging quadriceps and those heaving black male muscles. Maybe. You couldn't just shoot him two times. You know, he was hulking out on me. He was going to bend. Maybe. You got to shoot an 11-year-old three times. Black male privilege. I didn't even find out until the middle of the week on Discord, which I think is the same online site that Peyton Gendron talking, using to write his racist commentary in the lead up to his terrorist attack in Buffalo, East Side. This 17 year old white coward school terrorist in Iowa was on Discord moments before the shooting saying, I'm in the bathroom, I'm loading up. They got a nigger in the bathroom. I need him to leave so I can get my guns together. I said, dang, so was the nigger in the bathroom? Was that Amir Jolof? Can't be that many niggers in the school because Perry, Iowa is 76% white, less than 4% white. So how many Amir Jolofs do you have? Anyway, just like Columbine, this white coward left a pipe bomb in the school. This white coward's white parents said they didn't know anything about it. They sounded just like Columbine. We didn't know anything about this. We were planning for the future. He was talking about what he was going to do in the new year. Blah, 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 blah. Our other child was in the school. Halt. This white coward put a white bomb in a school where his sibling is present. White people do not care about children. White people kill for fun. Wow, I do not know what to say. We will be revisiting school shootings. We never really left them, but we will be revisiting. Oh, man. That is one I don't know if I've seen that quite before where the perpetrator had other relatives present who could have been killed in the attack. Bombs and all. Wow. What does it mean to be white? 
Let's see. Uh, last one that I'll get in. They, uh, President Biden was down in South Carolina at Mother Emanuel AME Church. And he was talking about, again, I find it, it's been nine years. It is so inaccurate. It is such an indictment of white supremacy racism that no one talks about that event as a political assassination. State Senator Reverend Clementa Pinckney, there is a long history in South Carolina of elected black officials being executed by racists. No one talks about that at all in connection to this case. And the times that I've broached it, I have been immediately rebuffed even by other black people. State Senator Reverend Clementa Pinckney had just been on television literally days before this attack in June 2015. He was just on television talking about white supremacy racism and the police shooting, killing of Walter Scott. I said then, you don't think Dylan Roof saw this living in South Carolina? I saw this. I live in Washington State, opposite side of the continent. You don't think race soldier who had been doing reconnaissance you don't think he saw this nigger man elected nigger man on television talking about no count Walter Scott this other nigger man anyway uh, President Biden down in South Carolina and talking about he said white supremacy is the poison of the country metaphor the cloud crowd timidly applauded. That's enough. They don't do that when I we've been context of white supremacy for 15 years. We have victims of white supremacy dial in. They look here, uh, Brother Gus. I don't think you need to be saying white supremacy. Why don't you change it to something else? Yeah, I don't supreme. Or. Racism. Or, or I remember this one. I remember when I told people about the program back when we first started way back when, and I would have people who said, hmm, hmm, hmm. White people going to get you. And they would walk up. <laughs> that would be, I guess I shouldn't be laughing because they were serious. They were not, they were not joking at all. But <laughs> we would sit in, and they would even agree. They would, mm hmm, yeah, mm hmm, context, yeah, mm, yeah, mm, total, say, oh, yeah, hmm. Mm. white people gonna get you and they walk which might be true however white people get a whole lot of non-white people who never utter a word about white supremacy racism therein lies the problem but they don't ever and I mean never under any circumstances that brother said context of white supremacy right on brother they don't they don't no they don't no anyway uh brother biden president biden i wonder i wonder if he had followed that with with the poison is white supremacy and any of you negroes who don't vote for me you are not black let me get an amen maybe he learned from the last time like i'm not gonna use that one again my black brother sorry about that one Sorry, I'm like, we still learning. That's what Brother Fuller say. We still learning, still learning. 
Anyway, he gives his raggedy uh, speech down at the church, and they bring victim of white supremacy state representative J.A. Moore on. He says, they ask him on PBS, has white supremacy gotten worse since the June 2015 Charleston attack? Representative Moore says, what's it? Hey, I just said state representative Clementa Pinckney. State Representative Moore says what's gotten worse is Donald Trump was president. Donald Trump. Oh, I lost my place. Wait a minute. Okay, here we go. Donald Trump has given a hall pass for white supremacy. Metaphor. And that's an important one because we're not in school. We're not talking about school children who are going to the bathroom. We're talking about terrorism with January 6th. That was not when they were urinating in the Capitol. That notwithstanding, the director of the FBI said that was domestic terrorism. He did not say that that was a hall pass for white supremacy. Words are important. We're not talking about unruly children here. He continues, and this is a state representative, like you use words. That is a big part of your profession, unless I'm misinformed. Uh, Not that I'm saying the former president himself is a white supremacist. So many white people have and do, even while he was president. Now, I totally understand why a non-white person would have to make all these caveats, but man, continuing. What as he has done is stoked that suppressed feelings and emotions out of so many Americans, white people, that are these MAGA Republicans, racial narrowing. So not in just the aftermath of the shooting, but the maturation of Donald Trump going down those escalators. We have just seen increase in white supremacy in the forefront more so than before. Victims guaranteed qualified. I don't know how much more forefront things can be now. When we had a black president, you had white people walking around with guns saying that they wanted to make sure that he failed, openly joining the Klan, telling him he's a liar (laughs) out on the floor of Congress and in front of the whole world. I don't know how much more afraid you're not even a citizen, nigga. Where are your papers at? Where are your papers? I don't know how much more in the forefront you could be. Now, I mean, now we could go way, way back. Hey, you got presidents who have owned slaves. Whichever way you want to take it. Long game, short game or long term historical white supremacy racism. We can go recent context, but either way, you can't be more forefront uh, out in the forefront than slavery. Sally Hemings (laughs) or. We got effigies to lynch that Negro historic number of death threats. Take it either way that you want to. But that notwithstanding, eh, all that racial narrowing and trying to blame all this on Donald Trump. I thought the the Charleston attack happened. Trump wasn't even in the White House yet. I thought Obama was still at 1600 Pennsylvania. I don't know. They said that. Matter of fact, they were using the same jargon. They were saying that the racists, they've been emboldened. Having the nigra in the White House, they're joining all these websites and all. They had all that scholarship, member. Let's see. Yeah, I'll pause there. Many more I could uh, 
bring up other things. Before I nab the callers, one is Ronnie Longs. They said, we all remember what happened to Ronnie Long. No, no, <laughs> I'm sure blackmail privilege, notwithstanding, uh, I'm sure that most of us have lost our free Ronnie Long t-shirts and have probably not used the free Ronnie Long hashtag in a couple of years. I'm going to hazard. I might be wrong. I'm assuming again, so, you know, but I'm going to take the bet that most of you all probably never heard of the privileged black male Ronnie Long, who just spent 44 years in greater confinement for raping a white woman before the whoops, whoops, whoops. I guess you didn't. And they didn't didn't say he raped a white, but they said he raped a prominent white woman. I said, dang, that's redundant. Did they like he didn't just rape a white who that who was this prominent white woman? Has she had anything to say about all this? This big whoops and dang, we didn't even he didn't even 44 years, 44. I'm going to alter the third assumption like I am really tripping. I'm going to bet we got quite a few folks listening haven't even been alive 44 years. Apologies to the fogies. But I mean, dang, 44 years. You haven't even seen Shawshank Redemption, man. 44 years. Jesus. That was one. Speaking of 44 years, you know, Deobra Redden is fitting to get about 44 years. I couldn't even, if you had said, hey man, I'll give you a million dollars. Do you know who Deobra Redden is? Unless I could have got some help. Can I text two or three people? Can I call a couple folks? Anything like that? <laughs> get some help because if I can't look, use my phone, get on my computer or something like that, yell out to black brother in the street or something. If I can't do that, I would fail. Like you could have given me, you know, all kinds of time. I would not have gotten it at all. Deobra Redden. Like, who is that? Deobra Redden? What kind of name? That's probably what I like. Deobra Redden. Are you sure? That's the name. Spell it. Deobra. Well, I've never heard that. That's goofy. I've never heard that. I'm pretty sure probably everybody, probably even a lot of people who do not own a computer saw the image, the gif of the privileged black male diving over the bench, doing the flying cross body press on the white female judge. I have seen more gifs, images of that, social media and elsewhere. And all kinds of context and all the rest. They have whole bodies of scholarship about that particular aspect of white supremacy racism. People using images of black people for their humor, entertainment, and amusement online. Uh, this pitiful illustration, I suspect most people no idea who is Deobra. 
Oh, that's the, oh, I've used that gif about 8 million times <laughs> when he jumped over and the car. No thought. Man, the same way they sit here for all these raggedy, coward school shooters that they brought up mental health, this lame white coward could have killed his own sibling. And, oh, he's mental health. Oh, yes. His brain computer was, Sue Klebo tried to tell us that the brain computer of these killers is not white. We need sympathy, you know. The overread negra, you don't even get a name. You're a meme. You just become a spectacle for it. We don't even what? He got sentenced to what? Oh, he had mental health? What? Oh dang. Dang. He's about to get forty four years in prison. And it can't even be dang. Could all of that have been like a panic attack? He didn't want to go back to prison in Las Vegas? Why? Why do you think a privileged black male you think a privileged black male didn't want to go to prison that bad? Really? Really? What What do you think they might do to a black male in prison that would make somebody behave like that? Hmm. 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 I have to think about that. I have to think about that especially because I don't even like Las Vegas when you don't have to be in greater confinement. I wanted to get out of Las Vegas immediately. The civilians just walk around and smoke cigarettes all day. They got they got slot machines and tequila in the grocery store. We're not even talking about greater confinement. I don't know. Maybe they got that, you know, the uh I was gonna say I keep thinking condiments, but that's not what they call it for the whatever it is for the items that you commissary that's it commissary maybe they got that for commissary too out in vegas i don't know but man and i've seen the memes i only got the one half of the memes and the gifts of him diving over the bench tap this white woman (laughs) they also did the same thing we had to go back the second time now they got him like hannibal there's your man not They got the shackles on his legs. They got the shackles on his arms. They got the shackles around his waist. They had, I don't even know what the contraptions were on his hands, but boy, they, it it was beyond Hannibal Lecter. They had the spit guard, the face guard, man, not. Is it a beast? Is it an ape? Is it a thing? Is it some sort of prehistoric entity that we found in a cave somewhere get uh, get back he might kill us all Deobra Redden that's who we've been chuckling at for the past week Deobra Redden like I said I would take that all day long nobody even knows your name privileged black brother but you will live on in social media infamy forever. <laughs> Look at him. <don't> <laughs> Blackmail privilege. The number again is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. In fact, 
people did send me reports about this nobody sent me a news report that actually had his name they just sent me the social media posts like I said which was mostly mocking a black male privileged 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 605-313-5164 the code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate folks who dialed in y'all have commentary observations to share uh, if anyone can prove me a liar you knew the overwritten's name already let us know Good evening, everyone. Uh, may I be heard? Greetings, Lauren. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, sir. I, I did not know his name. Um, about the segment that you play, Bill Russell, uh, when they were talking about having a Bill Russell Day and running, it said Bill Russell Day should focus on Russell, the athlete, and not race and civil rights. thought that was pretty interesting. Um, when they were talking about the defense secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, and the prostate cancer, I have talked to several black males who are at the age where they need um, to get colonoscopies, uh, you know, things like that, and uh, they, they said they would not do it. So I think they probably should, and probably, you know, people who are listening, if you are that age, um, it would be constructive. The segment about Taiwan, uh, where the lady was talking about, well, the question was asked, what separates Chinese and Taiwanese food? And the older lady said, she said, well, I, I can tell, but I didn't think that people would ask. I, I, I don't know whether she said I need to give a definition or I need to get a definition, but uh, both of those would be true. So, Definitions are really important, especially when it's something that you're talking about a lot. Um, the 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 shooter, uh, Dylan um, Lewis, um, um, no Butler, uh, Dylan Butler, um, the the father of the black male who was killed. Um, he said. He doesn't seek justice, but rather peace. Um, Mr. Fuller uh, said truth plus justice plus correctness equals peace. And I also think um, this black male maybe doesn't have a definition for justice. Um, uh, Ronnie Long in North Carolina uh, them giving him $750,000, I guess not, that's not exactly new, but what he said, North Carolina intentionally put me in the penitentiary, and you tell me $750,000 is worth 44 years of my life. Do the math on that. You, you know, you divide $750,000 by 44 years, I got $17,045 per year. And so I did minimum wage. I think I actually did $18. Um, times 40, you know, uh, however many weeks in the year, 
thirty-seven thousand four hundred and forty. I guess that would be the number before taxes. But it seemed like the amount of money they gave him would have been less money than working a minimum wage job. So that just lets you know the extreme uh, disregard that people have for the existence of black people in general and black males especially. Albano Affairs, I wasn't aware of that, uh, the the Albano, Al Boudreaux, I Googled it, and there is a picture of a white alligator standing up looking super cool, wearing a sweatshirt and pinstripe pants. I don't know what I expected, but I did not expect that 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 white alligator looked pretty cool and um cat williams when, when he said um you know if you have a billion dollars you don't ask permission you just do what you want and tell them i guess i'm paraphrasing i don't know if that's exactly how he said it but it made me think of something i heard a lot when i was growing up it was, i don't know i don't know if it's a common saying everywhere but the saying was you know a man do what he wants, but a boy does what he can that's what it made me think about. It made me think about white men and black males. And that's all I have. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, Lauren. Uh, I remember that when they were talking about uh, Cat Williams, and they were talking about, you know, if you have a billion dollars, you can do what you want. It's like, well, I see a lot of individuals who are classified as white. They do what they want. They do not. I just watched a whole now four years of white. You don't tell me to wear a mask. You don't tell me to get a vaccine. You don't tell me to do. You don't tell me to say I'm white. You boss nigga. You don't tell me nothing. I just watched a whole year of that total global health pandemic. You don't tell me what to do about nothing. And they didn't have a bit. I know, I know all of these folks who were out here cutting the fool. Air rage. And look here, nigga boy, you don't tell me to wear a mask on. I know all these folks are uh, billionaires. That's just not possible. I'm assuming again, fourth time. I had actually seen the albino mascot before. I actually thought I was looking at that again accidentally and I had to look at the date like nope 2024 this is brand new I saw him previously I think there was a week recently where there were uh, just a bunch of those reports uh, albino like all different types like uh, albino deer and albino skunk and albino whale and just bunches of them and I posted and somebody thought that I had found these like over the year or something I was like no the news clips are only the last seven days just things that happened this week it's very current for the compensatory call-in that includes albino affairs these are recent reports too and i said they're always talking about the albino and this is not i think they thought i had made that up i said no this is not a fake they've been talking about this for a while the albino uh mascot when i saw that this week i was like are you serious they're still like going on the campaign to get the album man and just as she said he looks so cool the albinism is supposed to be the Cajun because I have no idea what albinism has to do with so-called Cajun culture. Maybe I haven't spent enough time in Louisiana, Mississippi, 
region. Although I have been Louisiana repeatedly, I didn't even see any albino critters. If they were that uh, prevalent in the region, they wouldn't be the mascot. <laughs> they wouldn't have to go through all those protections. Like, oh, they just live out here. It must be a great environment for them. I don't think that's the case. Anywho, uh, oh, the food part in Taiwan, I played that if you are a foodie like myself, racism comes up in food, so free, everything. Everything is related to white supremacy racism. I've literally had people explain, uh, talk to me about Caribbean food uh, and saying food that non-white people are associated with became really spicy as a result of white supremacy racism in some parts of the world because as a result of white supremacy, the non-white people started having lots of famines. So they made the food spicier so you couldn't eat as much of it to respond to all of that. Even we heard talking about Jamaica and some other areas in the Caribbean, same thing with all of that sugar. It switched the diet and what the non-white people, black people were eating in that area. Now you have whole populations who have all this diabetes and problems because they all eat all this sugary food that they weren't eating before. Same thing you heard over there in Taiwan where sugar and producing all this, the Dutch and all the rest of it. It is amazing uh, just what you can track following what non-white people eat on this planet under the system of white supremacy racism and generally it not being high quality healthy organic vittles and or they started off eating healthy organic produce whatever things that were right there and then it switched over to you know everything horrible that you can imagine generally it is uh, not an improvement when the change in diet takes place uh, let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand Hello. up. There's uh, Irie in the Bayou area. Maybe she's grew up with lots of uh, albino reptiles. Uh, oh God, I'm thrown right now. <laughs> um, you know, I really don't keep up with albino nothing too much. Um, growing up, I can honestly say it wasn't a whole lot of. Um, a fascination with albino reptiles. I would say more so the fascination was, uh, I, like you said, Cajun country, like eating them, you know, and I never fancied alligators. I was tricked into eating alligator one time and I didn't appreciate it because one thing I understood about the system of racism, white supremacy was that uh, non-white black people have been fed to alligators and I always said I I never never wanted to um, eat an alligator because of that because I just didn't know I couldn't be assured like it's one thing to, for a cow to be given bone meal and some other crazy stuff but they don't you know they're, they're herbivores for the most part and nah I don't rock with that um I wanted to just add real quick that I actually am praying for uh, Diopra. I did not know his name, but before it became a meme or whatever, um, it seems as though um, uh, that video was available a little bit sooner or whatever, and I had seen it, and I moved on because I didn't understand everything that had happened. But 
a couple days ago, um, YouTube put in my feed and they were like the, the man that jumped on a judge got sentenced today and I saw him in the spit mask and all that and it reminded me of the mask that they would draw out from like the 17th century when they would have the spikes going into the neck with the holes in the mouth and stuff. So that way if you move, it would poke you, you know, and it's like this modified semblance of medieval torture because I'm sure it's stuffy in there as well. If it's made to keep, you know, materials and substances from getting out, it's probably hard to breathe in there. And so I listened to the young man's sister and his adopted mother, and they talked about how he had been obviously adopted on medication most most of his life, um, born as a crack, uh, with crack um, cocaine in his system. And so he obviously is not going to be able to process things a certain way, but that's not considered. We don't know how he was treated in school. I think and I suspect, well, I suspect his adopted mother was a single mother. I didn't see a man there with them. They were very poignant. They were articulate to um, to his case. And it reminded me of a young student that I'm with time to time who has some emotional situations. I think his parents have some mental deficits. Not big, but, you know, enough to materialize in him. And I've seen how frustrated he can be. And you have to be patient. You have to have patience with any child, but especially a black male child, because their frustration turns from sorrow, extreme sorrow. I'm not kidding. I've had a child, male child, with similar you know, issues just cry and cry and cry in my arms. And I just let him cry, but I would teach him how to breathe. And then he started to do that. And then he was gone and I never saw him again. All I could do was pray for him. But the student that I'm with now, he's to the point, he's a preteen, he's, you know, a tween. And that sorrow and sadness is turning into anger and anger turns into physical manifestations. Just like with the guy that tackled that teacher, like for a student to get to the point that they want to attack someone, for a young man with those type of issues to want to attack someone, they don't understand what's going on fully, number one. Number two, you know, the body will produce, you know, manifestations of these emotions that haven't been, You, if you're not taught how to handle it, it's just going to come out as aggression. There ain't no other way to say it. Plus, his mom said he went to, his mom gave him some bad advice, but she's a victim. The person that's most to blame is this this public defender who I suspect is an Asian, non-white person, but we know how Asians get down every now and then, who did not prepare this young man that when he went to court, he might be going to jail. His mom said, I told him, just take the plea, you'll be okay, and you'll be back home. And that's not what happened. That's not what happened. So the public defender poop job, as usual, all public defenders, mom doing her best, thinking something that wasn't true, being manipulated and lied to by the system, told her son something she thought was constructive, and he followed suit, and it didn't happen like that. And, yeah, he flew 
he it went he went overboard. But the system played with him. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just praying for him. I really am. We we play around with sex. We play around with ourselves and then have sex. <laughs> and then we have these kids that have problems and it's just really sad. It angers me. It angers me that there are so many institutions, organizations and whatnot out here right now while this money's flying around. Oh, we're going to help. We're going to teach people. We're going to teach the people. We're going to stop violence. We're going to do mental health. We're going to do the homeless. Blah, 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 blah. Lies. Lies, lies, lies. It's a racket. I've said that before. You know, if anybody should have been, uh, wait, to the point in the book that y'all finished, that man was on Ritalin at one time. He has some learning disabilities. Look how common it is. You know what I'm saying? Yes, he became a police officer, but there was a moment where he, he had enough wherewithal to understand he didn't need it. And if his dad hadn't listened to him, where would he be right now? Would he have been a Capitol Police officer? Who knows? But, you know, yes, black men right now are the butt of everything, the jokes, but of, you know, they're, they're just, you know, made non-human. It's ridiculous. You know, I feel a certain way because I have a son. I'm going to wrap it up. But it, it's just not right. Like, it, it's just angering me so much, you know. And I I advocate for anybody being mistreated, honestly, male or female. But this really sucks. I'm saying that as a mother, as a human being, and I'm in my line. Much obliged, Irie. Um, I do not have offspring, but for sure, stressful for parents uh, trying to do the best that they can under a system not designed for black children or parents. Uh, I did want to get in uh, quickly. She had talked about the public defender that Deobra uh, Redden likely had in uh, Nevada. Uh, she said the public defender, so-called Asian, she thinks, uh, we know how they get down, metaphor, uh, and important because I've been told by many non-white people, victims of white supremacy, many of the individuals who are classified as black, they don't exactly get down correctly either. Uh, in fact, so much so that someone has said, hey man, please do not call me brother and sister. Um, nobody gets down in a correct manner in the system of white supremacy, racism, white people, non-white people, even the people classified as black, even many of the people classified as black, where they have eight great grandparents all born in South Carolina, right next to Josephine Wright, the late, even many of them do not so-called get down in a correct manner to replace white supremacy with justice. So important there. Uh, let's see the, yeah, I don't, I'm sure they have many, that's Mumia. Many people have talked about the public defenders, white and non-white, not giving out correct, uh, advice and, and not helping clients in a correct manner. We generally have zero sympathy for it. Maybe that's why I said, maybe he'll serve 44 years. And then they'll, oh man, maybe we should have been a little bit more sympathetic. He's had a rough time. She was talking about Harry Dunn, incidentally, the book we just finished where he just 
Thursday, yes, was telling us about what she said, him uh, being on Ritalin. They said he was uh, hyperactivity, attention deficit disorder uh, growing up. And thankfully, his dad was sympathetic to him and uh, allowed him to get off of that medication and not staying uh, tethered to it through his childhood. Maybe he wouldn't have been on the police force and all that. Maybe he wouldn't have written, written that book. Might not be running for Congress. Who knows? Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in. Uh, victim in New Jersey should be with us. Hey, it was uh, Gus uh, and the listeners. <laughs> you might you can call me victim of North Carolina because I'm down here now. Um, well, not living, but just visiting. But uh, yeah, I, you know what? When I seen the uh, the victim that uh, attacked the judge, and when I seen how they had him you know, bound and handcuffed and, and, you know, you know, you know, his mouth covered, you know, cause I, I didn't really read any reports. I just was going off of, um, uh, off of the, the visual of the, um, video. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm like, wow, did he, you know, did he bite the lady? Like, why did they have him, his mouth gag? You know, I really didn't understand that. Then the attempted murder, I'm like, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, and, and again, like, where is the, you know, the empathy, you know, if said victim has a track record of, of, of mental issues, you know, that, that, you know, that, that, that coincides with, um, what listeners and also, um, Gus T. Renegade has said where, you know, we don't qualify for mental health. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, I just, I really, you know, I really empathize, uh, with that situation, you know, that it's, it's just tragic. And again, you know, just the joke of it all, not saying that it's a joke to us, but the system, how they joke, like you just said, 40 years from now, 30 years from now, oh, you know, we made a mistake, you know, this guy was mentally ill. We might've been, you know, too harsh and, you know. And they give an apology, you know, probably when he's dead. You know, they that's a, that's a common thing. You know, they wait to apologize or give you some old tacky pardon when you're dead. So, man, you know, sympathies out to him. Um, the Cat Williams um, um, sit down with Shannon Sharp. You know what, Gus? I, you know, again, like like news goes you know it, it it news and information whether constructive or non-constructive you know come so fast sometimes you don't even really have time to um analyze you know what you're looking at or what you're hearing but but you're right it was you know cat williams it was basically yeah just an interview of just you know griping with other black people you know kevin hart steve harvey um you know, I listened to a little of it. You know, it, it it never really made me look at um Steve Harvey or Kevin Hart any different. Um, when I listened to it I'm like, you know, I just thought, oh, okay, you know, you know, black a black man griping with other black people. And you're right, when it came to white people it was, you know, like you said, I'm scared of white women. Um uh Harvey Weinstein offered to give me um, oral sex. 
and stupid white people, you're right, <laughs> you know what I mean, but they still run the planet, and Mark Zuckerberg's bunker. So, it, again, it just seems like, you know, just just all the ridicule and the critique is towards somewhat powerless black people, even if they do have money. You know what I'm saying? You know, so, so I mean, yeah, you're right, 40... 40-something million views for that. Um, I'm down in North Carolina. Oh, I'm down in North Carolina. You know, this has nothing to do with the news segments, but my great-grand... Well, not my great-grandmother, but my grandmother health is declined. And um, Gus T and the listeners and all the information that we have been gathering about um, Michael Swango and the white medical... Um, institutions, um, again, this was an example, and also I had we had a chance, my family, to practice this. You have to be present at these medical um, facilities. You know, my grandmother, she's, she's in and out. She has a little dementia. She's in, she's in a recovery center. A um, lot, of, lot of black nurses and black um, staff. But they're not they're, they're not going to treat your loved ones like you will treat them. So it was just so important for us to be down here just for them to get a visual and understand, like, this lady, you know, she has family members. She has people that's flying in from out of town to check on her. You know, we've, we've given instructions, um, you know, you know, my grandmother can be very, um, you know, she she's very, she she's a she's she's a proud woman, you know. So she doesn't want a male nurse to change her. So we gave instructions like, listen, she's going to be defiant. She's already defiant when there are female nurses trying to wash and change her, but. A male, male, a nurse changing her, she's really going to be defiant. So we gave instructions. You know, we don't want that. It, it, there has to be female nurses. And with the nursing still, I mean, with the nurses, they can't force her to eat. So we were able to be here. My mother and sisters, they were here for weeks on end. And we're putting things in motion where we can check up on her regularly, but they don't have to force her to eat. So if she says she doesn't want anything to eat, she can go days. I mean, she can go the whole day without eating. So I just say that to say this. It is just so important to be present, to let people in the hospital, um, to people in these uh, recovery nursing homes to see that, your loved one is being checked on and has people checking up on her. So this is has this has been an emotional time. Um, also, <laughs> I'm in a hotel and white people are still griping about MLK birthday. I just happen to be in the uh, lobby area and I just heard, you know, I'm assuming this was a white person. She looks white, but she was shocked that. Monday was a federal holiday. I'm like, okay, how long has this been a federal holiday? Why is it always a shock or some kind of alarm 
or some kind of disapproval when it's MLK's birthday. So I'm so I'm down in North Carolina. I'm, I just I just listened. You know, I didn't say anything. You know, I just you know I just ordered me something and I'm going um back to my room. But boy, I mean, whether I'm in New Jersey or North Carolina, uh, MLK birthday, boy, it's controversial. I mean, these people will rather go to work than to have a day off or the mail stop or the banks being closed on Monday for MLK. So uh, <laughs> with that, I'll close. Man, they just had much obliged victim in New Jersey and uh, hope best wishes all of your family and relatives looking in on your grandmother. Um We just had all those vacation holidays, so-called uh, pagan rituals, right? Eggnog and such. Sometimes they even get nutty for Halloween, so-called. Thanksgiving and all the rest of it. The audacity. <sighs> Can't even have the mail running. We've had, and I said that we've had so many people for neutralizing workplace racism even dial in and talk about mm, can't believe got day off Monday and can't even come in to work on Monday got to take days off like, same thing do you sit around and do this like Memorial Day that's what you do so, can't believe this sit around wasting can't even get the mail talking about veterans you sit around and do that July 4th that's what you do Labor Day that's what you do first week of September man can't even go to the bank. Everything is closed. Ah, Labor Day. Why is that? That's what you do, right? He said, we've had ML. It's been a holiday for a minute now. That's not a new one. Should have adjusted to it. Got that all out. You've grown up with this, right? Most folks. We've had, I have to look to see. MLK has been a federal holiday about as long as Ronnie Long was in prison. I'm going to have to look to see how long, but I mean, it's been with us for a minute now. Mad. Mm. Dedication. Be present. If you have to have a family member, keep saying that. Be present. Be present. Even for a basic request like that. Let's have a female change her clothes. She's going to be resistant. Hey, a female. It's extra stick. Really? Like <laughs> that's come on. Have one person there, because I mean that's we talked about before. They had the facility in Missouri. They just shut the whole thing down. Supposed to be looking after elderly and all that. <laughs> Whatever. Boot them folks out on the curb and the staff too. You all get out of here too. <laughs> like man, have someone present so they can look, see what's going on. He talked about the fourth man. I just saw. I neglect. He can't play everything. But I just saw they had a report. They were talking about force feeding. Oh, they were talking about waterboarding. Sorry. So it was a report talking about force feeding of non-white people. And it was a separate report talking about uh, waterboarding prisoners. I was conflating them and thinking that they were force feeding prisoners, which they may be. But they were waterboarding the prisoners, force feeding other non-white people, victims of white supremacy. That could be your relative or loved one, too. 
have someone present. We talked about that too. You can organize shifts and what have you. That's great. Making a, a trip down. I could spend a little time, take a few shifts, check. And that's what I said. Just ask questions. You don't have to go in and get rowdy and be revolutionary and wear your Nat Turner shirt to the hospital. No, just sit quietly. Take a book. Take, you know what would be gangster? Take medical apartheid. Book Blind Eye, Mike Swango. Take one of those type of Vernelia Randall, Dying While Black. Dorothy Roberts, Killing the Black Body. Take one of those books and just sit and re- you don't have to say a word. You don't have to have your fatigues on and by any means necessary, my Nat Turner, my Malcolm X hat on. Nah, nah, nah. None of that. Don't even need a leather jacket. Sit. You can wear sweatpants. Something comfortable so you can be there for a while and be feeling all right. Sweatpants. Crocs. Harriet A. Washington. Medical apartheid. I'm going to sit, read about J. Marion Sims and look up at you from time to time. (laughs) Like what? Uh Uh-huh. Or like I said... Mike Swango, I think one of our listeners said she asked the doctor, do you know who Michael Swango? And they said, no, no, I don't know about no Michael Swango. Would you asking me about Mike? I'm going to go talk to, you know, this Negra asked me about Mike. What are you doing? What do you know about Michael Swango? You're not even supposed to be reading. Now he's supposed to let you in the library. He used to kill you all for reading and ask me about some Michael Swango, you think got these uppity reading niggers in the house? Security, security. <laughs> we just does in the archives. Recent, recent. Love it, man. Tell the family shit. Mike Swango, man. That's what the. Now we're not sitting around and talking about Steve. I don't care about Steve. Steve Harvey's not in charge of nothing. Cedric the Entertainer ain't in charge of nothing. Kevin Hart ain't in charge of nothing. We're going to sit around and talk about Mike Swango. That would have impressed me. Cat Williams said, man, if you heard about this Michael Swango, dude, like, man, putting Mickey in you in the hospital, like, man, put the spicy chicken on us. They didn't bring up Michael Swango. I don't, it wasn't in the transcript. Talk to your brother. Man, that could have been a Christmas gift. <laughs> like, give him book on Michael Swango. Here, read, read, read. Anybody has to go to the hospital coordinate we ask questions all of that get me on the phone we do the zoom all of that take the swango book with you to the hospital and read i was going to ask lauren like what was the reason given from the black males who did not want to go and get their checkup for their prostate now if they say michael swango okay valid point black brother valid point still you want to get your checkup. So let's see. Let's help find you a black doctor. Let's go. Bang. We get online. Boom, boom, boom. Now, if they have an excuse after that one, we'd have to investigate to see. But I mean, if it's, eh, I don't know, trust the, you know, they're going to do the old Tuskegee and Nurse Rivers. Like, okay, okay. Right. That's true. True, true. Got it. Okay. We'll get a black doctor and we'll make sure that they, you know, are not going to do an old Nurse Rivers on us, that they will be on the up and up do no harm and I'll go hang out and make sure that this black brother or sister that we find they are cool let's see 
other folks? Uh, uh, Gus. Victim in New Jersey, or I guess now, Gus, briefly, real, North Carolina? Yeah. <laughs> real fast, I just wanted to mention when you said learn a lot about everywhere. So most of my family is from North Carolina. So visiting my relatives, I found out that my uncle, who passed away, um, he was the first uh, UPS employee in Greenville, North Carolina, you know, for whatever that means. And I was just kind of, it just shocked me, you know what I mean, that being the first employee uh, at UPS would be like an accomplishment. But I said, wait a minute, we're in the system of white supremacy. This is North Carolina, which the whole United States is the South, but this is the South-South. But um, yeah, so and he he got he got real accolades for being the first UPS um, black UPS employee in Greenville, North Carolina. So um, yeah, so I found that out today uh, visiting relatives. So you know, kudos to uh, the late um, Melvin Pate. Melvin Payton, right on, right on. Not a privileged black male, I guess. I'm sure there were lots of individuals classified as white in the Carolinas who were not happy about Mr. Payton's uh, efforts uh, and had no interest in seeing, you know, (laughs) doing anything, package, driving, nothing. Like, get on out of here. That's, you know, not the world we grew up wanting to see. Um, Let's see other folks that they have uh, commentary suggestions uh, that they want to make sure that they get in before we wrap up hand up in the next minute or two before we uh, run out of time this Saturday evening uh, know if you're in an area where they're having extreme weather like we are in Seattle uh, right now uh, if you have the means time check on non-white people <clears throat> victims of white supremacy uh, to make sure you know they're okay haven't had any issues with their heating make sure they don't need a coat anything warm boots good socks make sure that they are doing all right uh don't need a lift that sort of thing anything that is reasonable assistance while some places are going through they postponed the flipping football game in buffalo i mean tackle football brain damage it's that cold it's 23 degrees it dropped a whole degree uh since the time that we've been on the air 23 degrees fahrenheit in seattle dick uh stay warm and safe again we'll be on the air tuesday normal time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific and then we'll be on every day remainder of the week normal time for all of the broadcasts 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific we'll start things off the day after the official King Holiday white person writing about their family's history of lynching a Negro looking forward Make sure, learn, do a little bit of research uh, about everything. In fact, that can be one right there. Ask folks, did you know who Deobra Redden, have you heard that name before? 
and just see, you know, how many people like, oh, okay, that's that's the black dude's name. Like, oh, that's his name. They might just break out into laughter. Who knows? We'll have to see. Uh, I'm going to have to Buffalo. That would be one I would encourage folks because, you know, we're traumatized and there's so many events and they have school shootings and white terrorism in general all the time. It's hard to keep track of it all. Remind people about Buffalo. When that happened, in fact, I remember some of the victims down in South Carolina saying it feels like people have already forgotten Charleston, South Carolina. It hasn't even been that long. And people, they killed an elected state representative. State senator, excuse me. And people don't even remember, much less talk about it as an assassination. Remind people about Buffalo and even, hey, trial. He was talking to a retired law enforcement officer before the shooting. Who was this? Have they been interviewed? Why didn't they share this information? Did they share this information? If they did, to whom? Lots of questions. We shall see how all of that unfolds. Uh, Incidentally, Brittany Watts in Ohio, Warren, Ohio specifically, they decided not to criminally charge her for desecration of a corpse. She had a miscarriage uh, and they were going to charge her. That is exactly what Dorothy Roberts talked about during her time here in Seattle. Not exclusively, but she mentioned that case specifically. And that's so current. It was, I think, Thursday that they announced. So when she talked about it on Wednesday, it was still kind of pending whether she was going to be charged. Then by the time we got back around to Thursday, she was not going to be charged. So they talked about it both days, even with the update. But all of that is in her book specifically that we talked about 15 years ago, killing the black body. She predicted that that sort of thing would be taking place and specifically targeting black females. All of that took place in Warren, Ohio. I checked just to see. And so the town suburb that's directly next to Warren, Ohio is Niles, Ohio, N-I-L-E-S, probably was a sundown town, so-called. I checked, and they have lots of commentary about Niles specifically. I'll just read the first one. It says, when I was young and growing up in Brittany Watts, Warren, Ohio, our neighboring town, Niles, had such a sign. Nigger, don't let the sun set on you at the city limits. I'll stop there. Um, that's the context for Brittany. I'd be curious. Like, have you heard of this? Do you know about Niles? Have you been to Niles for Brittany Watts? Have you been to Niles? Do you have any relatives? Anyone lives near Niles, Ohio? Anyway, uh, learn a little bit about everything. Say it again. Reading more important than watching television. Can't be said enough. New book coming to the book club. 
this Thursday I will solidify my selection by Tuesday so we'll find out when we have our white guest on the program I'll let folks know so that you can do what get the book from the library again you don't have to get every book that we read on the book club but hey time to time get one check out the pictures check out the references right flip through the footnotes maybe look at the chapter titles just browse you don't have to read every word but get the book follow along reading is more important than watching television sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy racism we do not need all that drinking narcotics and everything else protect your brain computer we have serious thinking to do creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring no cursing also on the 10 stops cow signing out will be here on tuesday normal time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.